Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I hit December running with another two-and-a-half-hour installment. We discuss revisiting something old and something new from Grant Morrison, Batman Annual Number 2 by Tom King, Lee Weeks, Elizabeth Brightwire, and Michael Lark, What Will Come After the Doomsday Clock, Cinder and Ash by Jerry Conway and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and much, much more. Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Hey, Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, hello! Happy December. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's a bit of a laugh. Whatnots, because uh, we're recording this on December second. Uh, on December first, no matter your political allegiance, I think everyone can agree it was a big day. Yeah. Uh, and Jeff and I are, uh, shall we say, uh, recovering yeah. from what is going on. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, and Graham, let me let me pivot immediately, immediately, because well, I do remember what I was going to ask you that was going to. Get I, us. I'm very excited. As you pointed out, welcome to December. Graham McMillan, A, tell me about your Advent calendar choices this year. I'm glad you asked, Jeff, because I actually forgot to open the Advent calendar yesterday. Because yesterday was really, like, weirdly busy. Yeah. Uh, so I opened it this morning and I opened doors one and two. I have a pop-up Advent calendar this year. Ooh. Uh, when you uh, fold the numbers up, mm-hmm. the numbers are unusually all in order hmm. which is you know normally it's like all over the place and you're like 25 is next to or 23 is next to two is mm-hmm. next to no it literally goes one two three four pop up huh. but when you put them up there are stickers which you then place on the pop-up thing oh. and it's it's uh, a nice woodland theme wow i'll take a photo please do notes, please do yeah. Yeah. So, Graham, it may interest you to know that you have given me Advent calendar fever over the last oh, few years. That I, that makes me happy. Last year, I believe you gave me an Advent I calendar. I did. It was the year before. Yeah. Oh, no, it was last year. It was and last I year. remember you told me that you were actually really excited about Advent calendars yourself. That's right. That's right. Which was brand new. Yeah. Uh, one or two. I don't. Have we even really talked about this in the podcast before? I love advent calendars, and yet you, they were they were not your. They thing were at completely all. foreign to me until yeah. until you kept going on and on about. It. I'm like, oh, oh, that kind of rings a bell. That, but I'm like, what? Well, I don't understand. I don't get it. And then of course I got it in a big way because really advent calendars are pretty much the Jeff Lester like. Mo distilled into a holiday package. It's oh, the okay. best so of. It's the best of hoarding and gift giving at the same time. There is a constant, steady stream of positive reinforcement with a somewhat shallow nod to um, long-term gratification to delayed gratification. But it's more or less all about little bits of immediate gratification. But you're not turning around and opening all 24 windows at once and going crazy. So, and then there's also the fact that there are different advent calendary type things. Now, again, you started me thinking about this. Trader Joe's, uh, had a really great, 
um, limited edition advent calendar like a year or two years ago, or maybe it was two years in a row. And uh, Edie and I really enjoyed the whole process of like, oh, it's a new day. Let's open up. Oh, hey, here's some chocolate. Let's get some chocolate. Um, And then I became crazily obsessed. Like I've never done it, but every year I've come this close to buying you one of the Lego advent calendars. You've said this more than once. Yeah, yeah. This this year I was like, oh shit. This did, is... did you get one for yourself? No, no, I haven't because I I have to admit I, I don't uh the the Lego thing is just it's a little too close to to crazy clutter for me. Like I've I've managed okay, to pare down so much of my life and get a lot of that out out, but I still have so much as only a man who failed to to stop his Marvel crate from resubscribing for another year can be like literally just like I have more shit that I know what to do with so I can't but I'm always so tempted and honestly if it was some sort of like Marvel hero Lego fig I would I would told I would like I would cave like a sandcastle yeah Yeah, exactly so so but as it is I'm very much like, oh man, the force. Yeah, maybe I should get it for Graham. But the thing is, is I, I, you know, I visit you at least once a year, sometimes more, and I know that you you keep things pretty pared down. I can't imagine you having twenty four Lego minifigs scattered across, you know, your desk or in your office or whatever. Maybe you'd be down with it. In which case, like, prepare for an yeah, onslaught he, next year. Yeah, but. here here's the thing. It, it totally comes down to, um, you know, is it like, like you? It, maybe not Marvel, but like, you know, if it was a, a it's Jack Kirby's Fourth World. Yeah, obviously right. it won't be, but like something like that, I'd be yeah. like, yes, like yeah. it's Legion of Superheroes. Sign me up. Right. But like, if it's just like it's random Lego dudes, probably not. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so last year the 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 passion sort of really hit its stride. I got you that advent calendar. I got Edie a L'Occitane en Provence. You, yes, I remember. Advent calendar. And she really dug it. She was like, this is great. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's so nice. I like to, she gets to get a present. Da, 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 da. So I got her one this year. But then, so this year, just, just to be clear, we, um, uh, I got her the L'Occitane on Provence advent calendar. Uh, we got the Trader Joe's adult chocolate or grown ups chocolate advent calendar, which sounds like it's going to be skeezy, but it just means that it's like dark chocolates with like black sea salt and stuff. And <laughs> then because, you know, I've thought that that was pretty weak. Oh no, I take it back. What happened was, I went online with some cash that I had from left over from uh Amazon gift card for my birthday and got myself a lint dark chocolate um advent calendar oh, which is very That's exciting. probably delicious. Well, let me tell you, it's been pretty good so far. Yesterday was was great. But the thing is it was crazy. It was it was like it was like this package will arrive between you know, November 29th and December 19th. And I'm like, okay, that seems like a weird spread. You're like, but can I call you up and be like, it's a fucking advent calendar. Let's get it much closer to December. Seriously. 
So I, so I ordered it and instantly it was like, thanks for ordering. And then it sent me like another thing five minutes later. Your delivery date is December 23rd. And I'm like, fuck you guys. Uh, you know, part of me is like, well, I'm going to be eating a shit ton of chocolate in like two days then. But so, so I went out and got the Trader Joe's like adult chocolates advent calendar. Yeah. And then of course, Two days after I did that, our Lint calendar showed up. And admittedly, of course it did. Of course it did. And this is the European Lint calendar, just so we're clear. So I'm, it's super delicious. It's super delicious. It's very much the dark chocolate. Although there's a little bit of, we're wondering if this is last year's uh, advent calendar, which is why it showed up to us like a early, but also the description's a little bit off because we were promised truffles and the, at least the back of the description is like, it appears truffle free. I mean, not all truffles, but some truffles. Anyway, then I became obsessed with the idea of getting advent calendars for our nieces. So I went online and spent some time poking around being like, what kind of, you know, and of course, once you're actually shopping for kids, you know, it's like, there's, it's just an endless amount of advent calendars. Um, so they're, coming over to spend the weekend to tonight to spend the night. And part of this all came about because I wanted to see them at the beginning of the month so we could get their advent calendars to them. So uh, one of them has like the, that, that only makes sense. Right. You know, so we'll see how, we'll see how it goes. Edie of course has teased me with the, the massive indifference with which they will probably greet these, uh, these fine, um, presence but that's okay i'm kind of okay with it i'm it, yeah it's, it's all about you jeff like yeah, it is and i'm not actually being sarcastic like it, with things like this it really is about you know you get past this on. yeah i i like the idea of giving it i really do and if the person's like eh, not so into it meh kind of like me maybe they'll grow into it and there'll be an advent calendar junkie in just a few short years because because uh, that's what graham mcmillan did to me we can but hope Indeed. Indeed. And what's great is, so one of them is getting the, the Paw Patrol advent calendar, because of course they like cute animals, and as far as I can tell, the Paw Patrol is just cute animals wearing cute hats that yeah, apparently they, do cute rescue duties, I yeah, guess? Yeah, is it not that they all work? Like, Maybe. They're not all of jobs? Yeah, I think they, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about them. I kind of bought it on the basis of like, oh, these dogs look, you know, it's, it's all pets and they look it's cute. dogs with purpose, says yeah. Jeff Lewis. Well, no, I mean, I like dogs. I'm, <laughs> I'm of course a little terrified. Like part of me is like, wait a minute, the whole point is they're working? Like, fuck that. I'm going to burn this thing now. Like the whole idea of like, here you go, little five-year-old. I want you to, to take all this delight from the idea that what's important about these adorable dogs is they hold down jobs, you know. Exactly, they have careers. They have careers. They That's work themselves thirteen hours a day. Why? So they can buy advent calendars for other dogs <laughs> that don't have jobs. And sometimes dogs in their department quit, and all of a sudden they've got to cover cover those other dogs. Exactly. Suddenly uh, the dogs are working like like well, they were working like dogs before, but they're working like fucking. Fucking nightmare dogs, day in, day out, <laughs> fucking dogs and dogs, and just when you think you want to, like, take a fucking break off, you find out three of the other dogs all took lunch at the same time because they didn't feel like 
fucking coordinating with each other. So suddenly you're not getting your fucking kibble until like two thirty in the afternoon, and you're just like, God damn it, why aren't I dead yet? <laughs> So enjoy, enjoy that motherfucking advent calendar. It's genuinely like laughing through the pain there. It really is. It's like, oh, Jeff, I find this so funny and yet horrendous at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. So, and then the other one got the Crayola Christmas Countdown Activity Advent Calendar because they're, they're, they're the one that always likes breaking things out and drawing stuff. And I don't know, it's a little iffy, you know, it's, I'm always, for the, the few times that we've gotten the older one, sort of the quote unquote grown up gifts, she's usually been good with it. And by grown up gifts, I mean like, you know, here's a present that's not just a toy. It's more of a, it's like an, it's an actual thing that you can do stuff with, you know? And, like how, isn't she still pretty young? Yeah, yeah, no, June seven. But the yeah. few times we've given her other stuff, like we gave her some, because uh, she was really into science, like a year, two years ago. But still is technically in a way. But she, so we got her these like fun science uh, experiments that you can do that are kind of just basically like, hey, you know, you can make you know play doh and sand magic sand crap, and the the best one is the one where you can basically make. Uh, Super Bowls. And I, I gotta tell you, like, that was Edie's idea. I'm like, it sounds a little utilitarian to me, you know? And, uh. Well, that's because I think you and me approach gifts in the same way, which is practical gifts are good if the people want practical gifts, but otherwise it feels like you're giving homework. Well, yeah, exactly. Cause, the, well, it's, and it's also very, for me, taken from, for the vast majority of my life, I, I, I always wanted the impractical stuff. I never wanted the homework stuff, you know, and I was like, Oh, a sweater. Great. You know, that kind of thing. So I was like, ah, but, but June was really into it. She really, she, in fact, the last time, not the last time, but two or three previous visits, she actually broke. And there were some other kids over. She actually broke out the experiment stuff and the kids made super balls and then ran around like throwing them all over the house and shrieking. And it was, and it was, it was great. It was impressively successful. So, so I'm hoping the Crayola thing is going to go off. Well, if nothing else, just the fact that it's a physically bigger package, I'm sure will please her. (laughs) Well, those are important things when you're, you know, with your siblings. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, like yeah. that you get the biggest one right. is important. Yeah. I, I'm the big sister. I get the big present. Raise the little sister. She gets the little present. I'm like, and like it doesn't even matter if it's, you know, visibly more expensive oh, as long as it's bigger. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. It's literally I, I could just be giving her a big cardboard box and I could be giving Ray like a gem and she'd be like, I win. This box is huge. My box has more wrapping paper. The end. (laughs) I can stand it. Exactly. I I am the winner. I win the internet. So, yeah. So, uh, Advent Company wants to win the internet. Jesus. Oh, yeah, right. The worst prize in the world. Well, remember when people used to say that back before the internet was interchangeable with the phrase poison chalice? Like, you know, it's like, (laughs) hey, I won the internet. Yay. Good for you. Look at you. You won the internet today. Wow. Exactly. I know. It's like, I won the internet. Give it back. (laughs) Ask for the cash equivalents. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, that's not working. Say, 
it's, they will let me pivot to video. What does that mean? That's apparently all I can do. I can either win the internet or I can <laughs> exactly. pivot to video. <sighs> Don't pivot to video. It all goes wrong. Advertising <laughs> exactly. goes, the revenue goes down, which everyone knew. Everyone knew beforehand, but they were like, oh, we don't give a shit. Okay. Uh, I, okay, I'm going to pivot off that to um, holiday stuff, which is guess what arrived in the mail this week that I bought on Thanksgiving Day morning because I literally – do you ever wake up and you're like oh, – have a craving, not for like food, which I think everyone wakes up at some point and they're like, oh, I really want to eat, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I woke up and I had a craving – Specifically for the out of print 2000 uh, trade paperback DC Universe Christmas. <laughs> of course you did. And I, and I went to Amazon and there was one copy left. And if it had not said one copy left, I probably wouldn't have bought it. No, of course. But because not. it said one copy left, I was like, I've got to snatch this motherfucker up now. <laughs> Amazon, if you ever want to sell me anything, just lie and say there's one copy left. Oh, I, I think I think Amazon knows. I appreciate you looking out for your buddy Amazon, but I'm pretty sure they've they've grokked to that already. So only only within a certain price range. Well, that... I remember looking once and they had the uh, the Seven Soldiers hardcover, mm-hmm. which for some reason both the Seven Soldiers hardcovers are amazingly rare, mm. like genuinely rare. And I was like, one copy left, thirty five dollars, and I was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. but this was like ten dollars or something. And I was like, yes. You have the fucking Legion of Superheroes one where they go searching for the Star of Bethlehem? Yes! <laughs> You've got Santa Claus versus Darkseid? I'm fucking by that. Those two pages alone are worth $10. Right, exactly. Exactly. Ah, this is, so is that what you've been re- when did it show up? Have you been reading this? It or? showed, it showed up this week. It showed up, uh, but I haven't been reading it. I've been reading, uh, it's, Jeff, it's, it's the last month of the year. And that means for certain people, <laughs> Uh, who have to do best of year lists, mm. you suddenly find yourself reading a lot of stuff that you haven't read <laughs> earlier in the year. Right, right. Uh, with the plus side of, I've read some great stuff this week. Terrific. Uh, but I, it's also, um, none of it is new, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, Tilly Walden's Spinning, the, mm. the first second graphic novel, right. is amazing. Right. Is really good. Uh, Jeff Lemire's Roughneck, not as good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, shit, what was the other thing I read that I really liked? Oh, balls. I can't remember the person's name. Eleanor. God, I'm going to have to look up her name. Um, uh, sorry, so it's not Eleanor at all. Sophia uh, Foster Domina. Uh, hmm. Sex Fantasy. Huh. It's a great, it's a great book. It's a collection of, of mini comics, I think. Uh, they're essentially just like, uh, I was going to say relationship dramas, but that that makes it sound more complete than it is. It's like scenes from relationships hmm. or conversations from relationships, mm-hmm. um, and it's just amazing. Hmm. I, I, that blew me away. Um, so yeah, I've been reading a bunch of stuff like that. Well, uh, please feel free to do. I mean, I don't know if you've heard Grant, yeah, but this I, is I, a I, comics I, podcast. You can tell us as, yeah, as much more if you want. I, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about all the news instead of the things that we've been reading. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like that at all. I'm, I, um, I, okay, I, yeah. Down the list because I actually made the list of everything that I wanted to read, and I'll tell you what I have read and, and have enjoyed. Um, actually, that's worth saying. One of the interesting things about actually purposefully looking for books that other people have already proclaimed best of the year mm-hmm. is that when you read them, even if you don't 
really dig it, mm-hmm. you still enjoy it because there's a quality there. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? You're not reading and going like, this is shit. Right. So it's not the sort uh, of thing. Like, the people who are recommending it really are at least recommending. It's like cut above stuff. It's not like ballot would, stuffing there's, shit. There's been a where couple where are... I've been like, oh, you can really see people's biases on show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nothing that I would say is bad, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, I think the thing that I, I, the two I, I have not really gotten to the extent that other people do, uh, is the Jeff Lamar, is Roughneck, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, Black Cloud from Image, mm-hmm. which is, um, Ivan Branton, Jason Latour, Greg Hinkle. Mm-hmm. Um, and in both cases, it really is a case of like, I recognize what people would see in this. Mm-hmm. But I like it's it's not working for me for a number of reasons. So, for example, Black Cloud is a book that feels almost like uh, it's been reverse engineered. Mm-hmm. It feels very much like something where someone's like, you know, what I'd love to do? I'd love to do a book that had the reach of Saga, mm-hmm. but also, you know, felt a bit more like uh, you know one of Rick Remender's comics. Mm-hmm. So, in what, fact, when you I... said the name, I was like, is that a Rick Remender comic? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, how can I reverse engineer these two things together? Mm-hmm. And what they've come up with is something that looks wonderful. Hinkle's art is great and Matt Wilson's coloring in, in particular is great. Mm-hmm. Like visually, it's a really good book. But the, the world building is super fucking fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, they, they're, they're leaning on like the, this is an epic, this is a fantasy epic mm-hmm. of it all, which means nothing's also really explained or achieved mm-hmm. in the first story. Mm-hmm. Because it's all about like, oh, you know, concept X that we're naming but not explaining, or you don't go up against concept X. Right. You know, and there's a lot of that, mm-hmm. that where you're like, you know, this, this might, this might read a lot better 30 issues down the line. Mm-hmm. But now it feels very much like we're putting all our pieces in order as opposed to this is a story. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, Roughneck as well, similarly, it feels like uh, I, I, Lamar was far too obvious as a writer behind the story. Mm. You know? He, he's much, he's he's clearly like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm telling a relationship drama. You know, that this guy, this guy is, is fucked up and his sister's fucked up in a different way. And it's because their father fucked them up. But they also have this tragic thing in their past and they will discuss this and then they'll both come out of it and become better people by embracing what makes them fucked up. Hmm. And then you can imagine him going, but what is the thing that makes them fucked up? Huh? How are they fucked up? Uh, okay, right. What if he's really violent? Yeah, that's good. But okay, but what does she have? Um, okay, let, well, she can have an abusive boyfriend, but that's not enough. Wait, what if also, oh, got it. She's fucking doing meth. And she's pregnant. Got it. Wow. You know, and you're like, sure. <laughs> right, sure. None of this feels organic at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but it's, but both these books have things going for it. Again, in, in the, in Lemire's case, his art has rarely looked better. Mm-hmm. Um, in large part because he's doing ink washes and watercolors over his, his line work. Mm-hmm. And that adds so much to his, his art. It's, it's beautiful. There, there's pages that are just sequences that are just gorgeous. Um, but I kind of wish he'd had a co-writer or a stronger editor or something. I wish the script had gone through at least another pass, put it that way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but at the same time, I've also, uh, you know, I, I finished Hostage, which I, I started and then sort of gave up halfway through because it's like 450 pages. Um, and that has the flip side of, of Lemire's book, which is I wish Guy Delisle had been more present as a writer. Because mm-hmm. uh, it feels very much like the guy he's interviewing is literally like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And it's like, you know, it's 450 pages. I want an author to step in and try and add some dynamism to this. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know. I feel it would be tighter if he did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, there's moments in the art where you're like, this is just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. This, this is beautiful. Uh, what else? I'm looking down this list and seeing what else I, I, I finished, I, I really liked. Um, uh, oh shit. Um, fuck, I've forgotten the name of it. My favorite thing is monsters. Which oh, everyone- god damn it, which I, of course I'm, I've, I've been meaning to read for, the better part of a year and still yeah, haven't, okay. you know. Like, Let, let's let's keep that until you've read it. Okay. And I'll try and get uh, it read before the end of the year because I because really I am think you'll I think you'll love it. Yeah. I think you'll really, really like it. Yeah. Um the Tilly Walden spinning book actually I I really got me as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I and that, that I also have thanks to thanks it to the suffers- experience. Yeah. It suffers a bit from also the, and then this happened, and then this happened, and you're like, I wish you were a bit more present as a writer. Mm-hmm. But the artwork, Jeff, holy shit. <laughs> it's, um, do you remember me raving about, uh, this one summer? Yes. And in particular, the artwork and how there, there's moments where the artwork is completely transcendent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Spinning has the same thing. Mm-hmm. Spinning has bits where the artwork will just take your breath away because it is so, um, light and so precise and yet so full with character mm. that you're just like this is this is amazing this this is genuinely stunning work hmm. uh, again could be shorter if there's one thing I'm getting from almost all of these books even things like my my favorite thing is monsters it's I wish someone had made these shorter <laughs> mm, interesting with, actually, with the exception of Roughneck which I think would would have worked better if it was longer huh because I think I think he rushes the characterization. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's it's fascinating going through like books that everyone has agreed are the best of the year. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because at this point, there have been a, a lot of people saying, "Oh, this is really great. This is really great." Um, and and sitting down with those books in particular is 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 a fascinating thing to do. Uh, not only because there really is like a level of quality. It's not like you go from my favorite thing is monsters and then all of a sudden you're reading. I'm trying to think of a, a, a book that isn't particularly good, but also isn't terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly like my mind's blanking. Uh, Superman, right? Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like all of these books offer something that engages you. Right. Uh, and something that, that, Makes a really rewarding experience. So it, it's been it's been funny. So I've been reading these, and then there's some times where like my brain is just full, mm-hmm. and so I've also been finishing up the books, the, the comics I got from the the big comic book sale that happened. Oh, shit, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been reading like you know 1981 issues of Justice League of America 
in between like you know some of this year's best comics well and so let me let me segue into that at least a little bit when you say the comics that you bought i'm i'm 90 percent sure you mean at the frankenstein swap that's held in portland that's exactly what i mean okay yes, that's exactly what but, did we talk about that on the podcast, or we did you and I talk about that before doing our Baxter Building? Well, you, you and I have, you and I have, I think mentioned the Frankenstein swap on air. I, I'm pretty sure. Like I was like, oh, absolutely, and then I realized it's just something that I know you've mentioned repeatedly off air as well. Yeah. So, so for people who don't know what this is, the Frankenstein Comic Swap is a. I think it happens twice a year mm-hmm. here in. Portland. Um, it is local comic stores and local dealers essentially like rent out a couple of rooms in the local eagle scout lounge <laughs> this that's our eagle scout lodge uh get the terminology right and and sell basically like comics for shit cheap yeah um, they say shit cheap i got 56 issues of justice league of america for 30 dollars. right yeah and the guy didn't like literally didn't know how many issues there were mm-hmm. i was I was looking through them and he was like, ah, oh, there's probably like 40 or something. Why don't you just give me $30 for the whole lot? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was only afterwards, like, there's 56 fucking comics here. Wow. That's fabulous. Yeah. Um, like, the ones that I didn't buy last time, but I saw them was just like, in one case, angry about. I've spent years, as you know, getting all the Paul Levitt's just, uh, Legion of Superheroes. Mm-hmm. He had, this guy had all of them with the ex- exception of two issues for $20. Oh. I know, and I was like, you motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Where were you four years ago when I started this? Uh, someone had the first 100 issues of Excalibur for, I think, $25. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that. That's one that you did mention to me uh, in an email, and I was like... Yeah. And it's just like, but things like that are nuts, because mm-hmm. you just see this thing, and you're like, this is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and in between all these, they also have... I mean, you should be here for one of these one day, Jeff, because... You would lose your shit because they also have like old school, uh, like pulp novels. Right. right. From like the 40s through the 60s for like a buck each. Yeah. Yeah. That, that or would wreck like these are DVDs or mm-hmm. like random magazines. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's literally just like two rooms filled with long boxes mm-hmm. that you go in going, I have no idea what I'm buying, what's going to be in here, but I'm going to see what there is. Yes. Uh, and it just, it's great. It's a great way to spend a couple of hours. It's basically the dumpster diving part at the end of every convention, but in an Eagle Scout Lodge. Right. Right. You know? So I got the, I got these Justice Leagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've talked about this before, that sometimes you read a comic and you realize you've read it as a kid. Mm-hmm. One of these comics, I, I clearly read as a kid and I didn't realize until I got to a particular page in the comic. Yeah, that's and I great. remembered that so clearly, mm-hmm. like more clearly than anything else I'd read that week. Mm-hmm. I remembered everything about it. Mm-hmm. I and also I remembered like where I was when I read it the first time. <laughs> you know, it was just like that powerful, and I really had the moment like, oh shit, I'm seven years old again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's how this comic came out. Yeah, well, some of some of that stuff yeah. really will. It it will it'll burn itself into your brain, like you know, it's practically a goddamn brand, you know. And you're just that that is an amazing feeling. I I intrigue it. Interestingly enough, have had the opposite sort of where um, I was reading something recently that I'd read before, and I was reading it, and I'm like. Oh, holy shit. This is really like, like, like moments that were really striking to me that I was like, oh, Christ, I don't 
remember this. I know I read this comic like multiple times, and yet this is kind of new, which is interesting. So, well, uh, what was the comic? Oh, well, before I get to there, and I will, I wanted to talk about the other sale, which is not one that happened um, <laughs> with long boxes. You're talk- no, you're talking about the uh, the. Black Friday sales. The enormous DC sales slash sales that they had on Comixology that, you know, as listeners know, Marvel is more than uh, occasionally turned around and dropped their prices significantly, Um, usually on Amazon, but you can come across some amazingly low prices on Comixology uh, for their digital books. DC is way more judicious about their uh, sales and their price cutting, but they had up through their up through Black Friday, they had marked down tons of their trades to like four ninety nine a piece digitally, and then after that, they had a a bogo sale, a buy one get one that ran I think through the rest of the weekend. Um, yeah, and so I was kind of curious, Graham McMillan. Did you buy anything at those prices? I bought I bought very little actually. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of it I already had. Mm-hmm. Uh I ended up getting the second Mark Wade Flash collection mm-hmm. because it has the Barry Allen Return of Barry Allen storyline in it, mm-hmm. which is is still one of my favorite superhero stories. Mm-hmm. Um and I got like three different legion of superhero trades and that's it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I got very 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 little. And honestly, if I hadn't um, if I hadn't realized that you could buy the books on Amazon for the same price mm-hmm. as you did on Comixology, I probably would have wouldn't even have bought any. Really? Yeah, because I access Comixology really, really rarely. Interesting. Interesting. So you would have bought them and read them on like through the Kindle. I, I did. Platform? Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, what was really interesting was. Not yeah. all the books were for, they weren't all the same price. Some books, weirdly enough, were like 734 or something instead of 489. Huh. Weird. Yeah, it was really weird. I yeah. did not see, I did not, what, I didn't what, see those prices. What did you get? That's what I want to know. Oh my god. The thing that I thought was interesting is, is it really had sort of classic Jeff to it. Like, it was like, no, nah, it's a, I've kept myself from the digital sales, you know, but I'm like, well, I could go back and see this son of a bitch in action. And at first I was like, oh, there's a lot here, but I don't know if there's really anything that speaks to me. And then uh, someone tweeted at us saying like, you know, kind of like, what should I get in this sale that would be good Legion books? And you were kind of like, oh, I tell people to start with the curse. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I was like, oh, uh, you know what? That's actually a really good idea. Like, I'm like... I'll get the curse. And then while I was there, I was like, and I'll get the Great Darkness Saga, which I, you know, have never had in collected. Like I've only read scattered issues. I've never read the whole thing. I'd never had the trade paperback. It's four ninety nine seems like a good price for a classic. Um there's that Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes volume yep, one. I got that. You're right. And that was and yep, I was like, I got, okay. I, got that. I was like, that's gonna do me. I'll be good. Three books, fifteen dollars. They're all big fatties. There, it's Legion of Superhero stuff, so that I can talk about talk about it with Graham, and I'm set. The end. 
But it was not the end, Graham McMillan. <laughs> Why was it not the end, Jeff? Uh, well, did there... you get other Legion stuff, or did you get other so, DCs? Yeah, I. It, so what happened was, I I think then again, people, you know, on Twitter, co-enablers, as I believe is the proper term, were kind of like, oh yeah, I totally, you know, like oh, you know, I picked up this and this, and I said something like, oh, I've got most of these, and they were like, oh yeah, I was really glad that I picked up uh, martial law, and I was like, oh fuck. Martial Law. And sure enough, Martial Law, the deluxe edition, was four ninety nine, And I'm like, I'm going to pick that up. And then I was like, I should probably get some sort of garbagey read, too. Like, there, I know that, what was that book that I, I saw recently when, when I was with Graham at Rose City, and I wish that there had been a cheap digital edition. I know there was something. I was like, what oh, was right. it? It was it was Neil Adams Superman the coming of the Superman. Oh shit. So yes. then oh, I get no. that for that's not even that's not even worth $5. I I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> you know the worst part is because I'm a total dumbass is after I clicked purchase and like okay great and I was like you know what that's a DC trade that I'm willing to bet Hoopla if it doesn't already have will have frighteningly soon and I could have sure. done it as a library book but the part of me that was already like hey you know what's great crack let's go get some more crack anyone want some crack I'm doing a crack run and so then I got Tales of the Batman Don Newton the Silver Age World's Finest uh, Volume 1 uh, Batman Second Chances Batman Shadow of the Bat Volumes 1 and 2 Superman Batman Saga of the Super Sons the Adventures of oh, Superman, great one. Jose Garcia Lopez. I realized I only had the first volume of the Gotham Central trades, so I picked up the rest of those. Then I picked up Multiversity and Comic Odyssey and Legends of the Dark Knight, Norm Brayfogel, and Adventures <laughs> of Superman, Gil Kane. And this Holy is shit, Jeff. This is the one that I thought was actually a smart buy. Um Cinder and Ash by Jerry Conway and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Jeff, talk to me about Cinder and Ash because I have tried to read it, by which I mean I got the book out of the library and literally got maybe about four pages into it and was like, eh, not for me. And yet I feel that the fault's on me because Jose Garcia Lopez, uh, Luis, what is it? Who is Jose? Luis? <laughs> I know it's so tough. Jose Luis <laughs> Garcia Lopez, yeah, uh, is amazing. Yeah, and Jerry Conway is pretty good, although he's pretty good for a superhero writer in the eighties. I don't know how he'd do outside of that bailiwick. Right. So, so I'm, I'm super curious. What what is it like? Uh right now, I'm. I, I well, and this is the thing. I, we had such a crazy morning. I was like, I'm going to sit down. I got to get this motherfucker read so that I can talk about the whole thing with Graham. And I'm only made it to part three of the four part, b the four books, because of course it was broken yeah, into yeah. four four issue miniseries. Each issue is about thirty pages. I've also tried to read it before in the past when it was first coming out and I feel like I've picked up the collections when I worked in the comic book store and I was just always like, uh, the art's good, but I'm, but I was, I was just, there was something about Conway that I was not digging. Um, yeah. 
And this time around, maybe it just found me in a totally amenable mood. But I was like, okay, like, I'm into it. And so for me, what's interesting about Cinder and Ash is how much, because it comes out during a period of time when it's like, it's May of 1988 and is the, is the cover on cover date on the first issue. Right. So, so how do I put this? There's just something a little bit about the pa- what I appreciate about it now is is here's Conway and he is clearly influenced by his past uh his contemporaries and I think people beyond him um who are doing things that he wants to both sort of emulate, try his hand at and develop um, which is to say, uh, one of the things that is interesting about Cinder and Ash that, that I'm fascinated with is there are, there's no thought balloons have disappeared. It's, uh, point of view, first person point of view through captions. He does something which is he alternates between Cinder's point of view and Ash's point of view and and unlike in regular quote unquote regular comics that we've seen now, um, I'm trying to think like, you know, when the hell was Batman year one? Uh, 80, 88. Right. So it's, it's kind of around the same time. And, and yeah, I, I definitely remember seeing the commercials for Cinder and Ash around the end of Watchmen, maybe. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. It seems like it's very much like this is what we're supposed to, this is where we're going next. Um, and really, okay. So, so you've got, you've, Cinder and Ash are, Cinder is, uh, uh, half Asian, half Vietnamese, half African American woman who was raised you know, who basically is orphaned in the closing days of the Vietnam War and then grows up to sort of become a, a master thief. And Ash is a Cajun, um, tough guy from out on the bayou who become goes to the Nam and is a soldier there and essentially hangs about after the war and connects with Cinder. And part of why the backstory is so front loaded into my explanation is present day, by which we mean 88 or so, they are private investigators in New Orleans. And, yeah. um, it opens up with, uh, the, the sequence where, um, Cinder shows up to pay ransom money to a biker gang to get, uh, somebody's kidnapped daughter back is kind of a textbook like big terse opening from a movie kind of thing in that immediately um you know she she walks in the bikers are like ha 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 we're gonna rough you up girly you know she needs one of the dudes like you know jumbo savate kicks another person shoots the gas tank of a motorcycle and it blows up and then ash um you know 
comes crashing through the gates in his, you know, big super, whatever the 88 version of an SUV is with his like Willie Nelson music playing and guns are going off and they get the, the kidnapped daughter. Oh, it's actually a kidnapped wife, which is a crucial part of the, the, their detectives with heart of gold is they realize that some of the bruises on the woman is actually much older um, you know, are, are several weeks old and she's supposedly only been captured, kidnapped like two or three days ago. So, mm-hmm. so they basically don't return her to the husband who's, who, you know, had hired them to get her back because he is an abusive piece of crap. And then of course, when he tries to like, you know, do the whole like, I'm a tough guy and I'm going to keep poking you in the chest, even though you've warned me not to and gets his fingers broken. By Cinder and Ash, who are like, fuck him, we don't need the money, woo, we did a good thing. <laughs> you know, it's basically, it's like an Aaron Spelling TV show with swears, which is part of the problem, in a way, sort of mature comic-wise, is like, it's a little, um, it's, 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 it's not original, I guess, you know. Oh no, it sounds, it sounds very much like a, you know, television show right it's it's a television show and it's very much working from the idea of particularly the fact that cinder once she's an orphan in saigon she is recruited by this guy Lacey, uh who is you know an american badass who Use it, trains her, realizes that she is this incredibly great street thief and she could be an incredibly great street thief. Trains her to be the best, but of course he's a bad character. He ends up raping her. She ends up, uh, you don't even, I haven't gotten to the backstory part where he's supposedly killed by Ash, who as a, um, expat, ex-GI is sort of wandering around Saigon and had seen Cinder when she in the bomb explosion that killed her mother has seen her as a, as a seen her as a traumatized orphan and um, loves her in some way. It's, it's very strongly. I suspect as someone who does not, um, who hasn't read the originals, there's a strange, as you know, wellspring of American heroine that is, really derived from the Modesty Blaze template, you know? Like, Storms, Chris Claremont rips off Modesty Blaze's background pretty much wholesale for Aurora's um, backstory as a thief. And Conway basically does Claremont one better in that Cinder and Ash are, are much closer. Like, the... Modesty blazes, you know, um, tough male compatriot who loves her, I, whose name I don't recall, is clearly has an analog in, um, you know, tough guy with the heart of gold, Ash. Um, so, so, so it's kind of derivative as hell, but what is interesting is, is for Conway, who I think is, most is is I think of his superhero work the more that I've read of it as kind of a as disciplined to a point and interested in characterization and kind of into plot 
but never really able to suture both together in a way that, you know, or if he does, the story engine propels and then kind of falls apart at the climax, kind of, or, mm-hmm. or, or else one or the other really gets lost. And at least in uh, Silver no, and Ash, yeah. No, I was going to say, re- reading through so many of the Justice Leagues, because remember, he starts in that book at like 150 and continues on more or less until that series ends. Wow. Like, he maybe jumps off definitely less than a year before the book ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do, like, so I've just mainlined a lot of Jerry Conway. Uh, superhero stuff. And you're totally right. Mm-hmm. He, he's not, he's bad at character work, but his character work is in a very particular bucket mm-hmm. that is very separate from his plot work. Right. Right. So, I mean, it's there, there are times when, cause for me, the big, uh, reading his run on Spider-Man, uh, his first run, I should say, on Spider-Man, it, for me, left this huge mark. And revisiting it, I'm in awe of some of the ambition. And as sometimes happens, I think perhaps as a nature of the work and what they're being paid, what what's easy to to, to dismiss as potential laziness, but could well be um, dispirited cynicism, like. The story is really, again, particularly with the stuff where Spider-Man's whole emotional trajectory in the wake of the death of Gwen Stacy is kind of amazing and yet at the same time hamstrung by Conway sort of writing these characters, like not knowing how to write these characters in a way that would have them still recognizably be like, say, Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson and get to the emotional payoffs of what he has for the relationship that develops. So it's all kind of, again, that weirdly, there's a lot more uh, implied, or there's a lot more that was inferred by me as a kid that made it seem deeper. And then I went back and I'm like, no, this is really shorthandy as crap. So all of which is to say, the Cinder and Ash stuff, at least the first two parts are tight really tight for Conway he at every scene is sort of the every scene happens for a reason and that reason serves two purposes which is to show show you kind of what's happening in the moment and how the story is quote unquote progressing the the narrative engine is tightening but it's also supposed to show you insight into who the main characters are. And of course, because there's a lot of um, transitions to their past and you have the narrative caption panels, you know, it's the comics version of showing who, you who they are, which is to say, in many cases, you're, you're being explicitly told, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and yet what I find fascinating is again, like reading it, I'm like, Oh, this is a very easy read in that, Conway is basically in 1988 telling a story that is shockingly close to the way that the Americans, most Americans tell their comic stories now in 2017 and kind of have for the last five to ten years, except, and this is the huge exception, which is it's paced like comics from the 80s which is to say uh, Garcia Lopez is doing amazing work but it's 
almost it's claustrophobically tight. Like he mm-hmm. works on a three tier grid most of the time, except when he cracks down and does a four tier gr- grid. So, so some of it set on nine panels is really common, but with him using a three, three, two combination or sometimes, uh, you know, a three, two, one combo, depending on how he's having his, his work, how the scenes are building. But what's astounding is it, it does, it feels, it feels claustrophobically tight. It really feels like there's too many words on the page. There's too much stuff that's happening. Lopez is one of those guys who can draw anything, like anything out in the world. He can draw to scale. He can draw changing perspectives. His characters can look recognizable and, you know, and everything is attractive, you know, so you get, you kind of get the whole thing, but but kind of on a three tier grid like that, it's the pages are are baroque to the point of being suffocating. And then you throw in Conway, who even though he's trying to use the techniques that will become modern comics, is also using the word count of eighties comics. Yes, it's yeah. it it's it's um. It's interesting. I I know why you kind of went like, eh, like if it was something like I don't know Atari Force, which is one of those things that I would absolutely try and buy up at the uh, <laughs> the Frankenstein comic swap. Um, it might be one thing, but but here where it's kind of not your version of the crime milieu, I suppose. I mean, and I know that you're. I know that you're more of a crime guy than I tend to think of you as. Um, it certainly as far as like pros, I suppose. I don't necessarily know where you fall on crime comics, but I know like, yeah, you're I'm not, I'm not very, yeah, I'm not very big on crime comics. Yeah. Uh, the thing that turned me off the last couple of times I've tried to read this book mm-hmm. is, um, is that it falls between the, the things I would be interested in. Mm hmm. It's not, uh, it uses the language of 1980s comics, and I seem to remember, and you could tell me if I'm misremembering, the coloring especially of 1980s comics. Yeah. Um, to try and recreate a 1980s action film. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And I remember like that leaving me cold. Right. Uh, no? this version that I'm looking at is, very interesting because because there's points where the coloring feels it's just it's a hard I think I, in some ways I was like would I like this book more if it was in black and white like there's some sequences where again part of me feels like someone's kind of like oh we gotta do something that's kind of like almost like watch you know how watchmen has like sequences where like sometimes the colors oversaturated but it almost works because the colors are off and then there's also times where the colors are like a little too bled out you, yeah, yeah you know what i mean there's a yeah. lot of that here where i can't tell if it's um Lopez is one of those dudes where one of my secret suspicions for why his stuff never really made him a super fan favorite is he's really hard to 
color in part because of, I think, his line weights. Like, he he has such a good, strong design sense, but once you throw in the color, like, you can't... You, you risk washing out everything on the page, you know, because he's already got too much detail on it. So here they've got a lot of, like... Um, Again, stuff that's either really saturated out or stuff that's really kind of weird, like when Cinder turns around and shoots the the motorcycle and it's supposed to be exploding, it's this weird Pepto-Bismol pink, which again, I think Mm -hmm. we have to, you know, I, I sort of blame the Watchmen influence for since that's everywhere through that, but I could totally be wrong. There's a lot of pinks and purples and then scenes where everything gets like kind of in in the uh shooter era marvel comics where everything gets swiped with like the same shade of blue in the background to basically make the figures in the foreground pop because because there's just too much elements in the panel and on the page like it's i just don't know part of me is like i wonder if this really would have worked better as black and white comics in a way you know like part of me is like it, it's just that thing. I'm not a colorist. I would love to see like a very talented colorist read. I was going to say, I, I'd, I'd love to see like a Jordi Belair right. go through that. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. or an Elizabeth Brightweiser. Go oh yeah. That. Elizabeth Brightweiser in particular, like holy shit. The, um, I was hoping I'd get a chance to talk to you about Batman Annual 2, which I did read, uh, just recently. I, I, I was really curious because I, I, Honestly, thought it was going to add grist to your mill. <laughs> it, no, really, seriously, I I thought that it was it was. Um, and it, my problem is, I read that the same weekend that I read like um, the most recent Joel Jones illustrated issues, the the mm-hmm. Batman and Catwoman go to Italia right. thing. And like, I read all of them in like as like a four parter. Mm. Um, and I actually came away from that being like, I can totally see where Jeff is coming from this time. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, I. But with the the flip side of, I really appreciate it, but I can also see why you wouldn't appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it is, uh, not that he's coming from saying like Batman is dumb, but I think he's definitely coming from as Batman is unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. Batman, Batman is dumb slash unhealthy. And one, what I think I like about Batman Annual Two, uh, so but much. You did like it. I did actually. I I I ended up liking it a lot, and it could help that I was reading it. I've been keeping up with the the Joel Jones issues. Like I, I you probably have access to next week's issue. I do not. Uh, I didn't have read up. Sorry. Oh, okay. No, that's fine. But um, I didn't know if it was would make much of a factor. But the some of these days, the the Batman Annual Two is honestly for me kind of this. Um, almost like a rewrite for King of like, okay, wait, wait, maybe no, no here. I'm going to let me, here I am. I'm going to reframe the Batman Catwoman relationship again so that you can understand it. And to me, it was much this. I, I like this issue a lot. I mean, a lot of it is, is that the, where it goes, it's kind of all, but an Elseworlds issue you know yeah, exactly by, by, the, by t- the end mm-hmm. by the end you're like oh okay right exactly it, like it, it's not 
just it, it really is an Elseworld essentially because it's not just a oh this is the whatever the mm-hmm. uh, new fifty two origin of Batman and Catwoman yes because it it ends in such a very particular place we are like oh so I, I guess this is an alternate world story right you know but it you know but in that weird kind of you know but aren't they all kind of way you know what yeah, I mean yeah. like it's a- and also like it's it's I said this I tweeted this out. After mm-hmm. I read them, but um, those four issues together maybe go. Oh, so he's he's not just Moore's formal uh, formal playfulness mm-hmm. or formal explore, exploration. It's Morrison's sentimentality as well, because the end of the annual for me is such a Morrison move. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, it's funny because I I see it. I kind of see it as something that that Moore would have done as well. Honestly, and maybe that's just me being. It felt too warm to be Moore for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it ultimately was a really. Um, I don't think Moore does sentiment. I don't think Moore does sentimentality. Mm-hmm. I think Moore attempts sentiment, but his work, n- but it never lands in the. I'm trying to think of the, the difference. Uh, Morrison, I think, can. And often does go for, you know, right up to the edge of corny, mm-hmm. you know, and is really willing slash eager to give the happy ending, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if it's not earned by the story. Right. And I think that Moore wouldn't. And I also think that Moore generally would want to stay with her on a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like I could see Moore doing a version of the the ending of Annual Two, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be that ending. It's interesting because for me, it's that weird second guesso of like I could see him doing a version of this ending, but it would. But before you got there, more would have been doing larger tropes. You know, he really would have been trying to boil down, like, how will Batman escape from his ultimate arch nemesis kind of deal that he would have pumped something in that would have made it feel maybe a little bit more like Neil Gaiman's, you know, whatever. Oh, God. Kate Crusader <laughs> bullshit, you know, yeah. and, and this this actually what I like about this, but I feel like it says a lot about both the changing tenor of the times generally and King's willingness to embrace that while using some of his older ambitions uh is it just it just it it just ends up being um quieter and therefore more effective in a way yes and that's yeah. one of the things that i think is was really so powerful about it like i was kind of like oh yeah this is sort of mostly working for me there's enough little clever gimmicks for me to get the story going but when it kicks into its last quarter or so um i guess when the art change happened yeah the michael arc which is really just like the last i think it's even less than a third of a book yeah it's like it's, it's really, really it really is like an epilogue to the rest of the story yeah but that's where it kicks you in the fucking gut yeah exactly Exactly. And in, in a way that is, yeah, isn't, is entirely wonderful. It really was. I was, I was kind of deeply moved about it. And it also kind of made me be like, Oh, two things. A, 
I'm interested where King is going to go because I kind of feel like this is here. Here's where he gets to have his cake, kind of, and, and yeah, and eat it. And I don't think he's going to. I don't necessarily know where he's going to go, but part of me is kind of like, well, I doubt he's going to end up here. And therefore, I think where he's going to go is going to, you know, hopefully in the best sense, kind of play off this and and do things. But I kind of can't imagine it being like this. But this is where he kind of gets to be where like, oh, this is where I would go with this. And this is where it would end up. And this is because because the last that brief epilogue is very much about kind of what I said is like, oh, he he's drained all the Batman out of his Batman comic again, but in a way that that really does work. Like it really is. He's he has enough time. He builds that transition in. He builds the characters in to where you're just you're invested. So I think it's actually quite strong where again I still uh, suspect that I can love this and I can go back to reading his regular issues of Batman and just be like oh for fuck's sake you know what I mean so <laughs> well that's because this really is a relatively standalone book oh, yeah. especially because of that epilogue yeah, yeah you know no, exactly he, he literally can't get there mm-hmm. in the main title yeah yeah he no can't. exactly no he because that that like yep. it's not it breaks the rules of the, the shared universe yep yep so did this all of the, that issue can be read as an elseworlds mm-hmm. and maybe that ironically might help um people who have more of a problem with the run than you mm-hmm. like accept it do you know what i mean because like it almost becomes explicitly not batman mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah do you yeah, know yeah, yeah. No, and I, uh, right, exactly. But, but I, I, I really liked it. I'm actually very glad you liked it, to be honest. I, I, I was, I remember finishing it and really liking it and then thinking about it later and thinking, this is something that Jeff Lyther like or really hates. Right, exactly. Well, and I think, again, I don't know if maybe for me it is the, if there is the, you, you were being very gracious and saying like, yeah, people who are even more opposed will like it here because it has the Elseworlds no, but he, out. But, but, but he, no, I don't think he does end, put this way, I think he does more quote unquote damage to Batman in the, the, the Joel Jones issues. Right. Than he does in the annual. Right. And, and that is a little bit of my worry in a way is, is that the annual really does have the, because he can, get to the ending of the annual um he doesn't have as much impatience with the bat shenanigans i think whereas again you know where we start to you know split hairs slash <laughs> to end up on opposite sides is i feel like there's a different there's a different set of tensions propelling his regular run um that, that just for me is like, mm. but this is, this, so, this really was kind of a thing of beauty. Something that I'm really enjoying and I think that you just aren't, mm-hmm. uh, about specifically the post, uh, War of Jokes and Riddles issues mm-hmm. is he's really leaning into the, um, breaking of the Bat Mythos, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? By having the, by having Batman get engaged, 
having other characters comment on how out of character that is, mm-hmm. and then presenting how out of character that is to these other to Superman, mm-hmm. to Talia, to Damien, mm-hmm. and having them all literally have to comment on it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not like he's subtly doing this. He's he feels like he's really really leading into it. Which makes me wonder what his endgame is. Right. Yeah. You know, because it's like, because you, you can only go so far with this. And, and not in the sense of like, you know, he's only got so many ideas, but literally, you, there are places you can't take Batman because DC will not let you take Batman. Well, but, I mean, this is, this is the thing. We've got a mythos. I mean, just the fact that the Joel Jones, for me, issues you've got Talia in there and you've got a really strong like the Lazarus pits are mentioned you know I I could totally be wrong but I can kind of see King doing something where where he pulls an on her Majesty's secret service with with Batman and Selena except then you know, and, and then you put Batman in the stage of super grieving and super torn and sort of the, the, you know, an even grimmer, grittier Batman where you're like, no, stop. This is not healthy. And then it ends up maneuvering to, uh, well, there's a Lazarus pit resurrection with Selena, but there's a cost. And that cost is she ends up not knowing or having to know or Talia insists mm-hmm. that Bruce never acknowledged the fact that they were married well, and she doesn't exactly know. And, and you know he's he set that up with by bringing Tally into the story at this yeah, point yeah so um, I I I was not thinking that I was honestly thinking that there it's going to be retconned out of existence interesting yeah I I, I think I think post Doomsday Clock we're heading for another continuity reset um for all of DC Graham I, I have I, bad I, news I don't mean to cut you off but I'm going to have to call you back and we're back we are. And you're fuzz-free. So I'm sorry, you were saying, you are suggesting... Um, Yeah, I I think there's going to be another continuity reset. I I think the end of Doomsday Clock is going to require another reboot, or or at least tidy up whatever they did after, like, Zero Hour and and Infinite Crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that King might, again, get to have his cake and eat it. He might get to, like, to do something that theoretically breaks the character. And then it's like, and then Dr. Manhattan came up and shot all over the DC Universe, and when they cleaned it up, they weren't married. Right. Like, I, I, that's, that's my suspicion. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. I, I kind of, uh, yeah, we'll see. I, let's put it this way. I certainly, from the noises that Johns is making about sort of doomsday clock and the whole sort of, corrective nature I guess of addressing the the influence on the DC characters and undoing it or w- sort of working through it it does kind of lend you to think like oh okay there's going to be a reboot here but but I don't know I just don't know because well, one of the reasons is also shit, I can't even remember what book it was I think it's oh shit action comics maybe mm-hmm. um, Batman outright says time is broken right um, and they've brought like Jorel back to life. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's certain things they've done that just seem like you can't just leave this like this. Right. No. You know, uh, like, yeah. you're going to have to do something. 
so I agree with you, but I guess the only thing, and I don't know because I don't, I don't think I read anything else, is I don't get much of an indication that the rest of the DCU has that. And I also kind of feel like, in that sense, if it were coming, I feel like everyone would be kind of breaking out. Everyone would be breaking out. Why? Well, you know I think what I there's mean? Various things that you could put in various books along those lines. Uh huh. Um, Flash has two kid flashes, for example, or right. I guess two Wally Wests. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess Green Lantern. Well, again, there's another weird continuity thing in that, like Green Lantern has an entirely different set of new gods from the, than the Mister Miracle series does, mm-hmm. and yet Tom King swears that Mister Miracle series is meant to be mainline DC continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, just yeah, there's just there's a bunch of stuff that is just weirdly off. Mm-hmm. But to have a character explicitly say time is broken makes me think that like this is there are their their finger is above the reset button. Mm. Um but it might literally just be the softest of resets of Superman says to Doctor Manhattan in the last issue, Oh, look at you, you were clumsy. Can you tidy it up? And he's like, Yes, I'll also put on pants. <laughs> You know, and then, you know, the next month they're like, ah, Jarrell never came back, and Batman was never married to Selena. Yeah. I don't know, we'll see. The other, I mean, the, the flaw in my theory is, there's no, um, there's no real end to the story then. Mm-hmm. Like, King tells the story and then it stops, as opposed to there being, uh, a climactic event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, cause I, I feel otherwise, I, I don't, think, to argue against myself, I don't think King would be content to leave it as and then they got married and lived happily ever after. Yeah. Yeah. I I I don't, I agree with you. I think there's a very I, it, that's why I feel like the annual is kind of his like, ah you know, here's my cake and what's, and it's and it, where it works and how it's placed for how it will shadow over the rest of the run is, eh, we'll see. I, I don't know. I, I, I see your point, but again, it just sort of feels, if nothing else, I really remember, um, just kind of how, well, two things. One, and I, I don't know that this is true or not, but you know, I could very well have been bleeding cooled on the subject, but I kind of am, you know, have, have, Bought into the narrative that Jeff Johns is Jeff Johns is doing the stuff at Doomsday Clock, um, and he has the clout to, to that it is being done, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the everyone else in the DCU editorial teams are on the same page with it. You know, I would argue you're getting bleeding cold. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, they are, they are, um, from what I have heard and what I've spoken to people about, they are unusually for DC focused, mm-hmm. uh, and unified in their direction. Okay. Well, that's, that is, that is, that is good to hear. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'm not, in, what I like about the Batman annual too is it kind of takes the edge off for me in a way because I feel like okay I'm going to kind of get the 
the Batman, I, I already have kind of the Batman finale that I think that King might want and that I wanted while reading the story in a way and that there's a little bit of the, um, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't have to worry about the hole in things, you know, problem. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, we'll see, we'll see how that ends up. That might, maybe that'll end up taking a lot of the edge off for me, um, for the, uh, for the, for the rest of King's stop run. Mm, probably not. I'll probably, I'll probably, it'll probably still be, I'll be super contentious, but I do have to say, as long as I'm talking about things and to switch gears a little bit, I do want to mention that I feel like, um, one or two episodes ago, I was kind of bitching about Lee Allred and Mike Allred's, uh, bug, the adventures of forager. I want to, I'm not sure that I was actually in an episode as much as we talked about after we recorded. Oh, maybe we did. Okay. Uh, and then I read like, I don't know, issues four and five, which I hadn't at some point. I read them both as a, cause I think I saw issue five on the comicsology storefront and I'm like, oh shit, OMAC. I've got to read OMAC, you know? And yeah. it was like, well, I've got, I read one through three. Let me get four. I'll read that. And then it was like, okay, I'm more on board. Like I'm kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, sometimes it's just the difference between when Leah Allred makes a bad dad joke as opposed to a good dad joke, or I don't really <laughs> know. I don't know what it is, but there's a, maybe it's also as he kind of, um, he's getting to some of the, the, like he, th- he starts, I think understandably with some of the more minor Kirby DCU characters and then is kind of building his way up. So this, some of the stuff that was happening with dead man, in issue four where dead man stuck dealing with the finale of the forever people set up for him where he's like, I'm stuck in a robot body that weighs three tons. I'm supposed to be an acrobat was really fun. And then of course the OMAX stuff, which turns around and picks up from that cliffhanger uh, ending of Kirby's and then tries to, to run another direction with it was I was like, okay, I'm into this. I'm, I'm kind of, it's fun. It's light. Like I literally put it down being like everything that I'd complained about like a month earlier suddenly had become a virtue. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's, it's, it's always the sort of things that, that can happen with comics. Similarly, one of the books that I think that I mentioned that I bought in the DC by the ton sale was, uh, multiversity. Yeah. I, and I was like, which, okay. which I was actually surprised you bought uh, other than you love buying things twice, but I remember <laughs> that you didn't particularly like it. The right. First time around. Yeah, 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 exactly. And cause I, I remember even making the argument that it's better if you read it in a one and you're like, eh. right, right. No. And I, I, it, it does make me think that I don't know. That it, that again, I'm very fickle when it comes to Morrison or Morrison stuff doesn't work as well for me the first time around until, you know, David Uzumari shows up and explains it. And then I'm like, <laughs> Oh, this is great. And then I'm rereading it. So the, I, I basically only made it through the first two issues, but the opener, I was like, this is really good. Like I'm sort of reading it and enjoying what Morrison is doing and saying in it. And again, a lot of it is informed by 
everyone trying to break that down and explain it and even Morrison sort of coming clean in some of his interviews and, and me just being kind of like, oh yeah, this, this works. And then I kind of got to the second issue, which is the, the SOS issue. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I, and I'm, you know, with the gorgeous Chris Rouse art and I'm being like, oh, I think this really didn't work for me the first time. And now rereading it, it works a little better, but kind of not, you know, like I really found myself being like, mm. <laughs> which is funny because in the first half of, of the, the society of superheroes, like, Doc Fate gathers a bunch of, of disparate heroes and is like, hey, we're basically being invaded by another Earth and another dimension. And then in the space of like two double page spreads, five years pass, the rest, you know, and the world is under siege and they're losing the war. And I'm like, yeah, wow, it's amazing. I wonder if like when I jumped off the book, was it that five years later caption? You know, like I'm just <laughs> like, uh Oh, there's too much going on. I don't know. No. Yes. No. I don't know. So, um, but yeah, I, but it, but by the same token, I, I find myself kind of really, I'm finding myself looking forward to, to digging into it and, and being like, being very aware that Morrison, thinks interesting about Morrison is he's not like Mr. Oh, I'm going to be a super mega on my sleeve. I was going to say hard on my sleeve formalist, but maybe I guess I mean like, I don't know, T-square on my sleeve formalist. <laughs> uh, but he definitely does, I think, design his books to be reread, you know? And, oh, oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And so I, I'm kind of looking forward to having that process of like, here I am rereading something that's designed for that and seeing what's, what stands out for me. And again, not to, you know, um, keep mentioning the thing that I keep insisting we not mention, but there's a lot because multiversity is set at this very high keen of everything is wrong. The world is falling apart. We're under a super invasion of horrible thoughts that when it came out is kind of a, well, sure. Okay. Things are a little, meh. but now in 2017, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this book has traveled backwards in time. Ah! <laughs> Which uh, gets particularly fascinating in the ultra comics issue. Right. Which yeah. is the one that outright says, this is a corrupted comic. This is an infected comic. Yeah. You are getting infected. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly, and then and so I'm very I'm fascinated to hear what you think when you finished reading it. Yeah, because one of the things for me really is the multiverse issue two, mm -hmm. the final issue of the series, which didn't. I remember you just didn't work for you at all. Yes, the first time around, right? Um, read infinitely better for me when I read them on a winner, and a lot of that comes from a it. The first issue was much fresher, mm -hmm. but more importantly. Reading it straight after Ultra Comics, mm -hmm. um, m makes it seem, I don't want to say sharper, mm -hmm. but makes its intent seem clearer to me. Right. Right. Because you do have a comic that is essentially, everything is wrong. Mm -hmm. Everything is terrible. You're being corrupted. Everything is corrupted. You're enabling the corruption. Right. And then the next issue is 
these ideas are so pure and so stupid and right. so outlandish <laughs> that they defeat the corruption by being something the corruption can't comprehend. Right. And we'll see, we'll see if and where that lands for me. Because the thing that I found that was interesting about thinking about multiversity is thinking about those areas, like kind of when this SOS issue came up, I was like, oh right, this fucking thing. Like, and not even a super <laughs> negative thing, but kind of a, oh, I, I think I'll, you know, maybe I'll like it more this time. But having that weird, like, wow, if you'd asked me to describe multiversity, I could have laid out a whole bunch of stuff and this issue would have totally dropped out. And I got to tell you, I cannot remember a goddamn thing about multiversity too. It's like the, it's like my experience of reading the book, of reading the series ends at ultra comics. So it'll be really interesting to revisit it and see like, that's not entirely true. I do remember the last page of, of multiversity too, and being kind of like, eh, Exactly. Like, what is this? <laughs> well, yeah. Honestly, it's one of those things where what someone says on Twitter about the last page made the last page stick for me in a way that if it hadn't happened, the last page would, like the rest of the book, just be gone to my terrible memory. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, kind of kind of interesting. And there is a point in Multiversity Number One where I think it's someone like Captain Carrot. Oh, right, because Captain Carrot is a comic book creator, where he mentions like, yeah, I always suspected that that uh, what we saw in comic books were actually events happening in parallel universes. He's like, that's why I always try and put happy endings in mine, you know. And I was like, oh, right. For whatever reason, that really pinged with me this time. Um, but. We'll see how it carries off. Cause again, one of the things that I think is problematic about Morrison, and I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's just 21st century itis, his happy stuff never lands as strongly for me as his unhappy stuff. You know? Um, Interesting. Uh, I want to pivot off that then and say, and you kind of know this, um, I read his latest Klaus book this week. Mm. The, the, the annual books he's doing that is essentially what a Santa Claus is a uh, superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes out this week, actually. It comes out December 6th. And it's called uh, Klaus and the Christmas on, in Xmasville. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. But what's fascinating is it feels like it fits into Malsaberstein, Jeff. I believe it. I, I totally uh, believe it. It is pretty much ontological warfare based around the idea of Santa Claus. Mm, mm-hmm. With a nod in there to Santa Claus conquers the Martians. <laughs> because, of, because of course there is. But of course there is, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Hmm. It is, there is a town called Exmasville, and it's purposefully Exmasville, not Christmasville. Right. Because there's a, there's a reference later on about how it is uh, a holiday for everyone that is commoditized. It's essentially Coca-Cola owns it. But it's called, I think they're called Polar Cola or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have made a deal with aliens that basically if they, if they feed children to the aliens, mm-hmm. then they can have this perfect town, which is Christmas every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kids are being kidnapped with their parents and their parents are being turned into Santa Clauses to go out and steal children. Right. And it, but, it, there is, like, there, it is very clearly, uh, cause at one point the, the company that owns the town talks about they're going to kill off Santa and replace him with a Santa of their own, mm-hmm. who won't 
like the old Sansa. He'll like wear the the company colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just it feels very much like what Morrison was doing in. Do you remember the Action Comics issue he did with? Uh, yes. The different worlds where it's the very Superman and then there's the corporate Superman who's the, yeah. the villain. Mm-hmm. It's up at Santa Claus. Right. Right. And it's great. Uh, it's super enjoyable in large part because Dan Moore's art is fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's Morrison doing Morrison. And I mean that in the best ways. Like it's Morrison doing Morrison, but he's doing it in whatever 40 pages. He gets in and out. It's pretty much like a Doctor Who Christmas special story. Right. Dan Moore's art just elevates it. Well, and 40 pages really helps, I think. Because one of the things that strikes me about Morrison, like you explaining all that, I was like, this sounds great. But honestly, that's the thing. So much of Morrison's later work for me, when you describe it, I'm like, that sounds great. And then I pick up the execution of it and Morrison's kind of like, oh yeah, I'm working on this uh, hyper compressed model where like uh, all the action scenes happen between panels and nobody speaks in nouns. It's all verbs. And, um, you know, you know, this is what the kids are like these days, you know, catch up grandpa. And, and it's, it's, I'm never like, like even again in this SOS issue, the whole like eight years later, five years later, like he's got a whole sequence where Lady Shiva and, and Lady Blackhawk are fighting in, uh, they're both ensnared in parachutes and they're fighting in trees at knife and sword point over like a pit of, hungry carnivorous alligators and it's like oh it's you know he you know morrison's like yeah this is pulp this is i'm doing the pulp thing you know but it but it's also so um it's 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 just so hyper compressed like morrison kind of really has the i love talking about these things and when it gets around to doing them he's like I will do the work to hyper compress everything and then you can expand it within the genius of your own mind, I'm like, yeah, but, but isn't someone going to hit someone else at some point, at any point, isn't there going to be punching? <laughs> He's like, wasn't there already punching, punching? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. S- Jeff, the one set of footprints was where Superman was punching you, you know? So it's like, I don't know. It's not my, um, Superman would not punch you, Jeff. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> No, I think he punches me all the way across the beach, and then the one set of footsteps is him walking all the way across the beach to punch me again. No, he's not punching. He's just shoving. Superman doesn't punch people who don't have superpowers. Uh, okay, Graham, that's that's. I see where I see where you've gotten confused. Then okay, just got shoves. <laughs> anyway, I have I have a question to ask, which is we have been talking now for like what an hour and a half, an hour and forty five minutes. I can tell. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And we have not talked about the CV Sabalski thing. Yeah. Wait, do you not want to talk about it? I, no, I mean, well, uh, I, I, like I said, part of me was, and I, and, and thanks to the miracle of Skype being weird and all this other stuff is I have no idea if I talked about it in a part that the listeners it, will be able to listen to or not. So we might as well say it again. I kind of just feel like the world's at this point where I was like, I worry that going down that going down any particular path is going to just put me in a state where 
where it's I don't know it's it's kind of like falling down the stairs. Like once I once I trip over the first one, I'm going to end up talking about how I feel about the state of the world today. And part of me is like I don't know if anyone wants to hear it, but but sure, let's go. I mean, the thing that's great is we both have some pretty good CB Sobolski takes. One of mine is like 12 years old, so you know, like it's it it. I, I feel like we should really you know bust tell, out. Tell me. T- tell me, or not even tell me, share the 12-year-old C.V. Sabelski take. Uh, well, listeners, our buddy Matt Turrell was, uh, decided that after, well, no, I can't talk about this because if they don't know the C.B. Sabolsky stuff, right? Okay, so let, let's explain the C.B. Sabolsky thing. We right. did, uh, two weeks ago now. Yep. Uh, uh, an emergency mini cast about the fact that C.B. Sabalski had all of a sudden become the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics that we thought was, I think we, it's fair to say that we thought it was kind of weird. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that, I think that's um, C.B. Sabalski, former editor for Marvel, former writer for Marvel, former assistant editor at Marvel, uh, who then became the uh, head of their new talent, talent division. And then eventually was, I was going to say promoted, but I don't think it's a promotion, was reassigned to working in China as the head of their Asian licensing department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of a sudden, yeah. as the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, all of a sudden, effective immediately, even though he didn't get into the country until this week, yeah. while he was flying to America, uh, David Brothers on Twitter pointed out that someone should ask him about the fact that he used to publish under the name Akira Ishida at Marvel, and isn't that a bit suspect? Yeah. Some background for people who just had no idea about this. Akira Ishida was a writer for Marvel between uh, 2004 and 2005. He published, I want to say, like five series and occasional fill-ins through Marvel. He was, according to Marvel at the time, a Japanese writer who had been raised partially in America and had learned to read English through comic books. Because of this, he was, quote-unquote, ideally suited to bring a Japanese flavor to Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm. He wrote comics like X-Men Fantastic Four. Uh, he wrote Marvel Adventures Fantastic Four for the first couple of issues. Uh, but he, more importantly, wrote a number of series that... I'm trying to think of a good way of saying this used Japan or Japan Japanese elements as uh, important touchstones on the work. Yeah. He did a Kitty Pride series where Kitty Pride goes to Japan to fight ninjas. He did a Wolverine series where Wolverine went to Japan to fight ninjas. He did an Electro series where Electro went to Japan to fight ninjas. And if that all sounds like he's not bringing anything uniquely Japanese as much as he's bringing fucking ninjas, that's okay. Because he also <laughs> said things like, there are five main islands in Japan. Spoilers, there's four. I... Love the fact that you pointed that out in your Hollywood, Hollywood Report Reporter. article. That was fucking awesome. Like, well, I mean, come on, Jeff. Yeah. Anyway, at the time, people were like, who is this Kirishita? Because he then disappeared from Marvel entirely. Right. He published another comic through Dark Horse and then literally disappeared. Um, people were like, what? what's the deal with this? And many people said, is it C.B. Sabalski? Because these comics were shit in the same way that C.B. Sabalski's comics were shit. And Marvel said, no! No, totally real man. Totally 100% real. Akira Ishida just left comics. That happens. Yeah. Definitely. 
Oh, and I should point out, Akira Ishida also gave interviews. Yeah, that's super Fed. important, too, because I forgot about that point. In fact, was he, did Akira Yoshida end up being one of the, the anointed young guns at no, some young point? Gun, I looked into this. Young Thank guns you. were only artists. You know, I thought they were only artists, and then there was one year toward the end where they started doing the writers, but anyway. Should, there were, no, know. that was the architect year, and that was after uh, Yoshida disappeared. Okay, all right. No, because like I said, I also thought the same thing. Okay. Um, anyway. Yoshida disappeared, everyone's like that but it was Sabalski, and Sabalski's like no, and Marvel's like no, and everyone denied it. Important point in this. One of the loudest voices denying this was Bleeding Cool. Yeah. Which will go, We heard the rumor too, but no. Right. Uh, CBR yeah, definitively also no. Yeah. yeah. CBR also ran a story that said, We heard this, but we've checked with Marvel and Marvel say no. Yeah. Earlier this year. And the timing of this is important for reasons I'll get to. In July of this year, a former Marvel assistant editor called Greg Schiegel uh, put out a podcast which was a, a vaguely, like, not really at all fictionalized version of what was going on at Marvel at the time, um, in which all the characters were renamed as, mem- as characters from the West Wing. And in this story, if you could translate which character was which, and it was not difficult... It's difficult for me because I've never watched The West Wing. So I was listening oh. to it being like. <laughs> You've never watched The West Wing? I, I, I mean, I've watched like 10 to 15 minutes of an episode, but no, I've never watched a full episode of The West Wing. I don't know why that's right. It does. Anyway, in the story, it basically says that right. C.B. Sabalski was Akira Shida. Mm-hmm. Again, Bleeding Cool writes a story that says, this seems really suspect, but we checked with everyone, and it's definitely not you guys. Yep. Definitely not. Yep. I'm staking my fucking reputation on the fact that it's not. Yep. So, cut to last Sunday. David Brothers on Twitter says, All right, Akira Yoshida was C.V. Sabalski. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> on Monday, on C.V. Sabalski's first day in the offices mm-hmm. at Marvel Comics, he gives an interview to Bleeding Cool. Sorry, it's not even an interview. He gives a statement to Bleeding Cool mm-hmm. where he confirms that he was a Yoshida. Yeah. And in fact, I'm going to have to look up this uh, the statement because the statement is fucking stunning. <laughs> no, it really is, Jeff. I am, I am, uh, I am astounded. In a way, I thought I thought this statement was kind of genius. Why? Well, you know, I know. And you're like, no, because you know what? He kind of had this thing of like, yeah, it was me, but uh, essentially, but it was no big deal in such a way that was so offhand that I was like, wait, that can't be right. But kind of, I had that thing of like, eh, it was a long time ago and you know, but, but how do I put it? Like the, the genius of it is because this is such a, a long time ago is it's very easy to to it it's like um you know how some people I'm like one of these people literally I cannot watch 3D movies because my stereoscopic vision doesn't work you know I basically <laughs> It's one of those things where it's like I wear glasses, my eyes are weird, and one of the things is like I I more or less have what I think is stereoscopic vision, but my depth perception is eh, but not great, like far from great, but I think I, I have depth perception. It's not totally like that. But you throw those um, glasses on, and 
because my eyes more or less alternate between which one's doing the work and don't really work together, stereo the stereoscopic effect for 3D movies doesn't kind of work. Like I saw Cameron's Avatar and I had like about 11 seconds where I was like, oh, that island kind of looks like it's floating in the air ahead of the thing behind it, kind of. But I didn't feel like it's like, you know, hanging over the audience or any some shit like that. Yeah. All of which is to say, I think what's amazing about the Akira Yoshida stuff and why it sort of worked for people like me who are dumb and not paying attention, and also, let's face it, like white and privileged and entitled and whatever, is is that there's a way in which I was like, okay, yeah, that's that's like like twelve year old racist shit that happened when the guy was young and maybe shit has changed. It, the stereoscopic part is the fact that it's like Marvel totally basically paved over this and made this guy editor in chief like what he well, did well, was wrong so let, back then well anyway yes let, please. let's yep. go let's go through the statement yep. so the statement is <clears throat> uh I, I stopped writing under the pseudonym akira Ishida after about a year mm-hmm. it wasn't transparent but it taught me a lot about writing communication and pressure I, I was young and naive and had lots to learn back then but this is all old news that has been dealt with and now, as Marvel's new editor-in-chief, I'm turning a new page, and I'm excited to start sharing all my Marvel experiences with up-and-coming t- global uh, up-and-coming talent around the globe. Right. Let's pick this apart. <laughs> I was young and naive. He was 35 years old. See, and that's one of those things that I didn't track. But yeah, 35. This is all old news that has been dealt with mm-hmm. in the same story. Yeah. Sabolsky says that he only told Marvel... After the podcast, which was in July of this year. Yep. So that's less than six months ago. Yeah. Bullshit. Well, no, exactly. And <laughs> I mean, I think that's it. It's the sort it's of thing. Of like, You're just saying it now. Yep. Yeah, it's happening Like, this for the is first when time. people are learning about it. It's literally new news. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no. And uh, then it proceeds to get worse, which I find fascinating. Like, I was uh, like... Which parts get worse? I mean, the other... Can I just, again, please. complain about Bleeding Cool besides the fact that... So, two things about Bleeding Cool. One, I saw so many people after this going, well, this proves that Bleeding Cool isn't sucking up to uh, C.B. Sabalski. <laughs> no, it proves literally the opposite. Yeah, exactly. He ran his statement with absolutely no follow-up question. Yep. You did not do any other research into this at all. Oh, it's... It's, That's what it, it's literally, you gave it... To a like, to, he gave the statement to a friendly uh, outlet. Mm-hmm. That's what you do when you want someone to drop it. Yep. Right. And that he ran like that just proves it. Also, he then had the the um the column two days later. Yes. Did you see that one? That yeah. that yeah. astounding column where the guy was like, "Well, I'm personally not affected, and I don't know if you, I don't think you are either." And anyway, I've been told that he was severely reprimanded. He got the fucking editor in chief job less than six months later. Yeah. Yep. For the love of fucking god. No, no, I know. It's a that, that whole like basically. Said, why the... would you publish that column? Yeah. Oh Jesus fucking yeah. Christ! That that follow up was amazing. Where I was like, huh. That's the, sort of like, that's a bad look. And then, of course, when Marvel taut, touted out, um, uh, oh, Sana. 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 Well, to be fair, Marvel didn't tout her out. She went on the record on a, a trip abroad. Marvel explicitly refused to comment on it. 
Because mm-hmm. I've talked to Marvel twice about this now. Mm. And they're just not, like, they're not going there. Which is amazing to me. Because the story has gone everywhere now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've said. Uh, Marvel has Marvel has no official comment on this at all. Mm-hmm. Because how can they? Mm-hmm. The only official comment anyone will accept is, you're right, we fired him. Right. Well, We're yeah. not going to fire him. Right. We're not going to fire him. Exactly. But yes, exactly. Anna Aminat came out with, where's her? Because um, uh, she, she basically said, he knows some Japanese people. Well, and he's, and he speaks Japanese. It was such a weird version. Uh, the, the, the stuff was so tone deaf. I really did have the, oh, it, this is the. Amazing that, yeah. that, like she said it at all. Yeah. She said, this is a world he understood. He's one of my favorite people. And I think many people who know CB will know that he is one of the most globally minded and very culturally sensitive as well. I also like how that sentence doesn't make sense in a Donald Trump way. <laughs> He is one of the most globally minded and very culturally sensitive as well. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a word missing in that statement. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that man has lived in Japan, speaks Japanese, and has lived all over the world. He very much associates with Japanese culture. And I think that him writing for whatever time it was, was him trying to be a writer more than anything else. Really? Was it? Yeah. Really? Because I could be wrong. You gave fucking interviews as a Japanese man who talked about how Western audiences couldn't understand Japanese culture like you could. And then you wrote lots of stories about the characters going to Japan and writing and fighting ninjas. Right, 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 right. Oh, I totally forgot the other thing that Bleeding Cool ran that I found stunning that it would be running unchallenged was the whole like, oh, yeah, so, you know, we revisited this issue. And what happened is I've talked to everyone and they've all given like these stories like it all makes sense now. Like, you know, CB visited with a Japanese translator and that was who everyone thought that they met <laughs> when they said amazing. they met him at yes. And I'm just like, this is the most this is this is a stunningly blatant lie. Like everything about it was was such a level of like complete lying bullshit. Like not just sort of like oh it's a misunderstanding. I'm like this is a lie. These are calculated it's, lies. It's, you know. Not only is that, it's a lie that makes everyone at Marvel look amazingly racist. <laughs> we met a Japanese guy and we never asked him his name. Yeah, right. You just know? assumed he's the Japanese guy we know. Yeah. Exactly. You know? I'm not on that. It, it literally doesn't make sense because Mike Martz, the editor, the one person who's put his name on the record as having met Akira Ishida, mm-hmm. talks about having, he went out to lunch with him and talked about his, this is my favorite part, Godzilla collection. Yes. Right? Because, of course. Um, right. But yeah, like that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So either this guy pretended to be Akira Ishida. Right. Or, Mike Martz is lying. Mm-hmm. Or, Mike Martz talked to a guy, never asked him his name. Right. And just assumed that he was lying. Oh, there's also the new wrinkle that came out yesterday, which is Dark Horse, who also published Akira Ishida, have said that they did not, when they made the checks out to Akira Ishida, <laughs> the checks were not made out to either C.B. Sabalski or Akira Ishida. <laughs> So who the fuck did they pay? Why couldn't they I, say that so, part? I, that would help so, so much. I just love the I, idea that they so like. So many people offer suggestions on this. Yeah. Uh, the suggestions are these things. A, 
C.B. Sabalski invented a third person. Mm-hmm. B. He set up an LLC. Right. Thirdly, there was an agent involved who knew this all along. Right. But I had people from other comic companies in my DMs going, "This is how it works." Mm-hmm. Like Dark Horse either knew, or C.B. Sabalski broke the law. Right. 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 Well, I mean, I, it depends on what you mean, I guess, by breaking the law. But you know, I. I it would not surprise me if there was just a stunning lack of due diligence, like you said, an LLC or doing business as, or again that idea of I don't doubt because there are there are people who are managed in comics, you know, who have. Well, no, that's true. There, there has there has to be an agent. There yeah, has to be an agent in there. Yeah. So the question is, of course, was the agency be Sapolsky? Right. That would be genius. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is. It's, it's the thing that I think is great about that is Dark Horse's statement is precisely the, we are not getting dragged into this shit, but it is in no way, uh, we're going to help people understand what happened. You know what I mean? Oh no, like, it just, it just makes things more confusing. Yeah. Like, why would you put in your official statement, we didn't pay CB Sabalski or Akira Ishida? Why would you say that? Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. Like, it's nuts. Um, Oh, and the, the one other thing is there's a wrinkle to all of this, which is this, the rumor beforehand was that Akira Yoshida was CB Sabalski using other people's pitches. Oh, yeah. As plot springboards. Right. Um, which no one has followed up on. Which is, which but, I would which be is, very curious about. Yeah. Know? Which I'm very, I'd love to know more. And also, someone told Geek.com, and they're anonymous. They haven't come out yet, and Geek.com is not saying who it is. But someone told Geek.com, um, I pitched in some of these things mm-hmm. and didn't get the work. Yeah. And I guess now it's because I know a Marvel editor got the work instead. Mm-hmm. Oh, we should explain that whole part of it. There, is, there was, I've, I've been told that this might not be the case anymore, but there definitely was at the time, the rule that no Marvel editor could freelance on a Marvel title. Yes. They could write a Marvel title and not receive any extra money for it. Mm-hmm. Or drop a Marvel title and not receive any extra mar- money for it. But they could not freelance, as in write a comic and get paid separately for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it is seen by, I think, almost everyone that Sobolski was basically gaming the system with this pseudonym. Yeah. That it had nothing to do with, you know, he's being culturally sensitive or whatever bullshit uh, and had everything to do with Sabalski basically trying to make extra money. Mm-hmm. Well, making, uh, making extra money on top. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Oh, I should, the, the other, I didn't get into the other part of Sana, Sana Amanat's statement, oh, which yeah. was Stunning. Yeah, that's which is the, the part, comparison which is... with Brian Michael Bendis. Yep. Yeah. Uh, of course, we want cultural authenticity, and we're making sure we're casting those people behind the scenes. But the primary goal is getting those kinds of characters out there. She said, "I think we have to be very sensitive about cultural appropriation and whitewashing." But I do think fundamentally that if there's an opportunity to create more awareness about a particular type of character, whether it's an Asian character or a black character, that should be our primary goal. Telling as authentic, as honest, as fun, a re- as real a story about as possible about that character, because that's what's really going to build more awareness about a particular cultural group. Sana, first of all, shut the fuck up. Secondly, Kirishida was writing about the existing characters. Right. 
she cited Brian Michael Bendis. He is as white as they come, but he happens to have a daughter who's African-American. So it means something to him. We have to stop dismissing people who, when they want to be able to promote that, because then we're going to be able to create a deepening, dividing line between cultures in a way that is antagonistic. We have to start communicating and not being so angry. Again, Sana, he was writing the fucking existing characters who were white and then fighting ninjas. Right. Yeah. Jesus fuck. Seriously, if Bendis hadn't quit the company already, I'd be like, I would be calling for Bendis to quit the company over that. Oh, I kind of don't think, think that that's... Bendis as a shield? Yeah. I don't think this. that statement would have come up, uh, if Bendis was still at the company. But I could, I could totally be wrong. Cause honestly, uh, I felt like the statement was so weirdly dismissive of what Bendis was doing by, by, not just the equivalency, which is so blatantly false, but, which just really had, it's interesting because, um, one of the things that, uh, bu- 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 someone had pointed out when we were talking about, um, the fact that, that, you know, white creators get to write people of color and people of color get to write people of color, you know, when there's an opening for them that the white, car- white writers haven't taken or white creators haven't taken is someone in one of our comment threads, and this was months back, said like, uh, you guys do know that like Brian Michael Bendis has adopted kids of color and he's creating books for them. And, you know, I'll be honest, I did not know that, but it also didn't, I didn't reply because it kind of didn't speak to the point, which is I am a big, I'm definitely down with like, yes, you know, creators should be able to write about whatever they want to write about, you know, although they should do that quote unquote responsibly, whatever the hell that means. But it does get down to that idea of like, yes, I'm talking about the people of color, creators of color who are not being allowed to write Captain America, which very well, again, was scheduled to change and would be something more of what I'm talking about, you know, that I wanted to see change. But well, so, as far as we know, it's still scheduled to change. Like we have, we have no idea what. No one has any idea what's going on behind the scenes of Marvel yeah, right no, now. No, exactly, and that's why I said might change, might not change. You know, won't, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one incredibly popular uh, creator of color writing, you know, one, you know, white superhero suddenly creates is like, oh, well, hey, welcome. Like we've arrived, everyone. You know, welcome, welcome to post-racial America, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, I, I just, I just, I was impressed at kind of weirdly, how weirdly odious all of, I found that particular set of statements, but. And also coming from Santa Amanat. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, she, I, she has always been held up as the, the one that, the person that everyone's like, yeah, but she's the cool one. Right. Like, she's the one who actually gets it. And for her to be the first Marvel person to speak out. Well. Was, was kind of surprising. And again, I saw this from the context of, as you pointed out, that this, this was done, that article was for the Asia Times or something like that. When I ran across the context of it, it had already been framed in under the, hey, so here's, you know, we're all aware of like, here's the situation. Here's where Marvel throws one of the brown people who works for them under the bus to basically say that things are not, not so bad. And so I very much framed it as that idea of like, oh yeah, Marvel basically still is like, you got to get out, I, and get out there ahead of I, us for this. 
you know. I'm honest. I honestly don't know how involved Marvel were. If well, exactly. I, if I were that. being completely honest, mm-hmm. and if I was making a guess, I think Marvel's probably really pissed that she said that. Probably. I think you're probably right. Because uh, she didn't do them any favors at all. Yeah. Well, yeah. And again, it's kind of the, it, just the placement of it. You know, it's like when Marvel wants its stories placed, like when Marvel wants its story statements made that people will pay attention to it. It will do that. It does that. You know what I mean? Like suddenly oh, there's an but, editor but on does Good it? Morning America. I've been thinking about that because this week we've seen the announcement of uh, two, at least two, maybe three new Marvel books. Mm-hmm. And they were all announced on Twitter, mm-hmm. which seemed really strange to me. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, we've got a new mutant series again. Sure. Think that. That, like, you think that that at least could have been placed somewhere. But no, it was announced on Twitter. I think it was announced on Twitter because they literally didn't want to put themselves in the position of being asked about the Sobolski thing because it's gotten so much coverage and so much likes. If the Sobolski thing not, hadn't happened, not, yeah. I think it would have been placed. We would we would have something where the fucking New York Post is like, hey, good news. Frank Thierry's got a series with Marvel, you know, and now I think it's just it is what it is, you know. So, but I could be wrong on that. I don't know. You know, you you've got a much better sense of these things. Anyway, yeah, do we it, get to it, talk about where strange. I come into things? <laughs> yes, please. Let's. Yeah, because we we this all happened in our like. Let's set the stage for Jeff's moment of glory. Jeff, let's actually get to your moment of glory. My moment of glory, ladies and gentlemen, which is hilarious because it's not. It's it's as is with so many of my moments of glory, <laughs> muted, overshadowed, misdirected. Uh, is, is that Matt Turrell was like, yeah, so I'm thinking what I'll do is I'll actually review some of the, I want to, I want to, it's a genius idea. I want to read some of the Akira Yoshida books that are still on Marvel Unlimited and do reviews of them as if they're, as if they're real stuff before they get yanked. This is a great idea. And he emailed Graham and I about this, uh, while Graham being Graham was, you know, uh, charming and helpful and efficacious. And me being me, I was probably sobbing at work with a towel stuffed into my mouth so that people couldn't hear me, um, you know, in the next office over and occasionally checking I, I my just, emails. I just want to interrupt for a second and say, you're actually not exaggerating. There was an email <laughs> chain with you, me, and Matt this week where basically me and Matt were like, hey, blah, 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 blah. And then you pretty much just broke in going, oh, shit. Yes. Everything's terrible. Oh, fuck. Yep. Yeah, I totally did. I totally fucking did. Uh, So anyway, so yeah, so there was this point where Matt's like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. This will be awesome. And apparently I think he went out and maybe did did a bit of research, which is to say, you know, a Google search or two. And he's like, holy shit, you guys. Here's a review. Here's Hibbs's review of Wolverine Soul Taker number one, and it made me gasp out loud. And of course, Matt being Matt, he posted it immediately to Twitter because it's a, it's a, it's a very much a capsule review. It has, as of today, 83 retweets and 140 likes. Uh, no, no, you're counting. Not, oh, yeah, exactly. Not that I, not that I'm paying attention to that. Who, how would I know? Uh, and it's, it's a, it's from that stage real early 2005 where I, I'm shocked to think that you had not come onto the website at that point, Graham, but I think it was just me and Hibbs. I was certainly still working in the comic shop. I don't know. The weird part is, is I want to, I want to say it was 2006, 2007. I came on. 
Yeah, you know, I'm still having It's gotta be 2006. It's gotta be 2006. Well, okay. Matt, Matt says like, here's Savage Critic writing in 2005 about a book written by Marvel's new white editor-in-chief pretending to be a Japanese guy. And the capsule review is, I don't know why I read this. If you like art where nobody has elbows or plots are so underwhelming they read like overly verbose coloring books or a book about Jap- Japan done so unconvincingly you first wonder if the creators are Japanese-American rather than Japanese, then think maybe they're untalented white guys hiding under Japanese names before finally doubting <laughs> they were human at all and are instead a disguise for some prototype auto-manga gener- generation software Marvel keeps trying then this is the book for you. Awful. And so, yeah, so he's, so basically someone back in 2005 was like, this is so poorly written. I would suspect that this is a white guy pretending Jeff, hiding. Who Japan. would that someone be? Well, I'm pretty sure it's me looking at the context of the rest of the reviews. I was like, uh, my, I said once, once, uh, Matt, emailed this to us and was like, oh my god, Hibbs is a genius. I was like, uh, I, I don't really remember, but I think I wrote this. <laughs> and, and, well, here's the thing, it kind of has to be you, because yeah. otherwise Brian Hibbs is not only writing about himself in the third person elsewhere, but he's calling himself Hibbs, which he never does. Yes, yeah, exactly. When I was looking at the rest of it, because it's one capsule review out of a bunch of others and starts off with it being, admittedly, it's under Brian's byline, but there's reasons for that. And so ultimately, one of the things that really cracks me up is the idea of the writer who's trying to hide <laughs> is being called out by the writer who can't be noticed is just kind of... There's something so richly satisfying about that in a way where I was just like a writer who can't be noticed. Yeah. Jet, well, come on. You know, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I don't mean in the, in it's, I, I do mean it in a, oh, pity me sense, but there's a way in which I'm just like, <laughs> that, there's no way to say the writer that can't be noticed in a way that isn't <laughs> okay. Pity me. There's no humble way to say I can't be noticed. Well, but I mean, the number of times that I've managed to, when, when I told Edie about this, her first response was literally, and I quote, why does this keep happening to you? <laughs> because See, what I thought you were going to say was it's supremely funny that a writer who hate under a pseudonym is being called out by a writer that everyone has mislabeled and got the name wrong. Well, for. that's what I mean. Essentially, that's what I mean. Like, I'm being the, it's, it, that's, I'm being the self-pitying take on that. But that's the part that I think is really amusing. It's like, huh, yeah, that's, oof. That's how history works. The huh? irony, huh? Yeah, exactly. So, so yes, everyone, you'll be happy to know that Jeff, and I gotta admit, I, you know, Matt afterwards was like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, you know, that he basically tweeted it out like it was Hibbs, you know, cause he linked to Savage Critic. I'm like, no, no, it's totally fine. Like, it totally, you saw it, it, throw it out there. And I said, and it's, which is entirely true, I, I have no memory of Writing that comic, I sort of honestly, it's weird because it could well be a fake. That was the the point where you like you were reading everything that came out every week. Exactly, it's literally one book reviewed out of I think fourteen in that post. You know, I also do some hot takes. Again, the fact that it's the amazing Joy Buzzards like issue three, and it's I'm like, 
oh yeah, this is again why I think it's me because it, I remember being frustrated. The Amazing Joy Buzzards. Nobody remembers that book, but I do remember it, and I remember thinking, oh, this is a great idea, you know. And it was executed so poorly. I was like, I was like, I really hate sort of. Saying, you know, kind of bashing a comic that at that point was published by Image and was probably selling like, I don't know, 800 copies or something like that. And, and me being like, yeah, this is not good. And it's a shame because I really wanted it to be good. So there's all the rest of it. I mean, just the fact that I ran, I read that, uh, review and ran out of breath before I got to the end of the sentence to me is like, yeah, that, that seems like one of mine, you know. <laughs> So, What's really funny is like I totally thought it was Hibbs, but was also like that totally doesn't sound like Hibbs, right? But I didn't think oh, it was Jeff. I was just like, yeah, Je-. like Hibbs was much much more brutal back then. <laughs> well, it was great. You did say like I poked around the page, and it does sound an awfully lot like you. It really does. So yeah, it's anyway. I'm pretty sure I wrote that review. <laughs> Again, the moment of glory. Woohoo. Uh, so yeah, those are our hot takes. Our, one of which, again, has traveled 12 years into the future to arrive to us today. <laughs> um, which is part of the no, fun. Think, that's what people think are Think about it. You were that ahead of the game. Yeah. You were that, that's the, that's what you should take from this. You were that ahead of the game, Jeff. Well, no, this is the thing that I think is really funny is, is, and this is why I do think that it's me is I definitely have that if it's, either a fit false recovered memory or an actual vague memory of like, oh, right, I do remember because saying, basically saying like this, per- what if these people are Japanese American instead of Japanese, which I thought was kind of funny, and then saying like, or what if they're untalented white guys, like writing it and being like, this is kind of a step too far. Like, you know, like this was, I definitely can have a sharp tongue, as you know, uh, and back when Hibbs and I, when it was just kind of the two of us on the Savage Critic and it was just capsule reviews and half of my reviews are kind of, you know, my honest takes, which are delivered in a way to try and make people laugh. I was like, oh yeah, this, again, like I, I remember feeling like, ooh, is this a bit too far? And that's sort of that, like when we talk about, you know, kind of the ongoing, um, uh, debate about politically incorrect comedy or commentary and stuff like that. As you know, I'm actually a big fan of being politically sort of correct, but there's a way in which, like, I remember writing it being like, this is an insensitive thing to say, you know, to say that this is, this comic was so, and I don't remember what it was, but I remember feeling like, this person has never been to Japan. Like, there was just something about it, which is, like, when they're like, oh, C.B. Sapolsky's been to Japan. He speaks Japanese. I'm like, but then why was this so... It was so bad. And again, it's that it's that ninja thing. Like, all of the stuff that you talk about, it doesn't read like someone who was, like, born in Japan and blah, blah, blah. It reads like someone who read a lot of Chris Claremont comics and wants to write Chris Claremont comics and was at that age when Chris Claremont was throwing fucking ninjas in everything. You well, know? well, the funny thing about that is you look at, like, the stuff that C.B. Subalski has credited to himself at Marvel, mm-hmm. and that's entirely the case. Mm-hmm. Like, he clearly grew up in, like, ni- mid-1980s Chris Claremont. Right, right. Um, I'm trying to find the, um, how was the easiest way to find this? The Newsarama interview with Yoshida. Ooh. 
um, because there's a, a beautiful bit. And I don't think you read it, Jeff. There's a beautiful bit. Mm-hmm. Um, with your background, what uniquely Japanese influences have you brought into the history and origin of the hand? Okay. Say you were a white guy trying to pretend to be Japanese. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to this question? With your background, what uniquely Japanese influences have you brought into the history and origin of the hand? I would I say, I, I, do you want, do you want me to, and yeah, maybe no, you did I, tell I me this, but if yeah, not, I, I want your answer. Cause I think maybe I did see this, but I'm going to guess, uh, again, thanks to the miracle of having some, not myself, but having friends who've been to Japan or visited Japan and kind of do the, what you don't understand about Japanese culture is the, that Japanese culture traditional Japanese culture has a very strong element of xenophobia to it. And so therefore the uniquely Japanese element that you bring is the idea that, uh, is that, that many Japanese people are very uncomfortable with white people. The actual answer, my version of the hand is greatly influenced by my love of Japanese history. Kurosawa movies and samurai manga like Lone Wolf and Cub, Blade of the Immortal, and even Naruto. (laughs) Okay. Why do you think stories of the samurai and ninja are so compelling today, particularly in the West? Again, this is a 35-year-old white man born in Connecticut pretending to be a Japanese man. I just had a similar conversation with one of my editors, actually. People always ask Japanese writers and artists why Catholic and Christian religious symbolism is so prevalent in many Japanese manga and anime series, like Trigon or Helsing or Corona Crusade. They seem to think that the creators are trying to make some kind of statement about Western religion in contrast to Buddhism and Shinto. Sorry, but it's usually nothing that deep. The answers are much more simple. One, crosses and religious symbolism look cool and provide great imagery. Two, Japanese people don't really understand Western religion, so the creators can take a few more liberties in telling stories about those practices. And three, there is an air of mystery surrounding Western religion and its history of violence that makes for great stories. I think these three same points hold true for the Western fascination with Japanese history and culture. It's cool, it's mysterious, and it makes for exciting, violent comics and games. Isn't that staggering? Like, isn't that staggering? Okay, here's the thing where I'm clearly going to out myself as an, as like an old white guy who is kind of blinkered by his own racism. But I'm like, I don't see, I feel like that's a pretty acceptable answer as a native Japanese person. Astounding in a white guy pretending to be Japanese saying the Japanese people don't understand Western culture and speaking on behalf of them like that? You don't, you're not like, that's amazing. Well, no, 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 no. No, I mean, no, that is the, that is the part that the whole thing is kind of like, ooh, you know, again, it's that thing of like, once it's, once it's someone pretending to be someone, it's kind of bullshit. But, but how do I put it? Like, there's, um, I feel like 
uh, rev- interviews that I've read with manga creators, admittedly, I haven't read a ton, and they're all um, uh, translated, you know, because I don't, I don't read Japanese. There's kind of that strong element of kind of, basically, you downplay everything that you do. You know, and so a little bit of the whole like, oh, yeah, no, sort of like, oh, yeah, it, you know, we're not trying to say anything. We're not trying to do anything special. We're just we're just saying something because it looks cool and is fun. And frankly, a lot of people don't know about it. Like part of me is sort of like, I feel like maybe I have heard an actual manga ka say like, yeah, it's easier to write stories about different cultures because you can get away with more stuff and it looks cool. Like the, the, because it looks cool. Now the thing is, is the big difference is, is that those are people talking about their own work. You know what I mean? Like they would say like, Oh yeah, people ask me like, what are you trying to say about Christianity? And I just assure them, I just like the way the crosses look. And it's kind of a little bit of the thing that you're trained to be very humble and therefore you can't come across like you're bragging. And so you've got to kind of minimize anything that you're doing. You sort of have to erase like, oh, ha, ha, ha. oh, yeah, some people say that I'm trying to tell very important stories. But really, you know, I'm just trying to make people uh, enjoy things and maybe, you know, you know, live to my next payday or whatever. And then, of course, in private, they feel very differently. But they're talking about their own work. I don't think. I, I guess you're right. Thinking about it now, it's unbelievably presumptuous, I would think, for someone to actually say that, not so much about the Japanese culture, but to say it about other creators' work. Like, it would be seen as really rude to say, like, oh, yeah, Blade of the Immortal or uh, Full Metal Evangelist or Alchemist or whatever. You know, like, whatever they break out, is it's, you know, Devil May Cry. Like, it would be really rude to even presume to say what the creators were doing on it. That's probably mm-hmm. the part that feels weirdly wrong and off to me. Like you would say, like, also, oh, my own work is this and that, you know? Also in that interview, he reveals that um, Akira Yoshida got that series because, excuse me, because there was an editorial meeting where the idea of revisiting some of his ideas and his pitches had come up. Which is a great thing to say when you consider C.B. Subalski was an editor at that time. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, there's just shit. I do love. I mean, there's the so much I... there. His his editor was also uh, Mackenzie Cadenhead in these books, right. who was, of course, C.B. Subalski's co-editor in Runaways. Yeah. So I mean, you're left like... with two things. One, she knew. Right. Or two, she didn't. And C.B. is literally, like, working with her by day and then gaslighting her by night. <laughs> Well, but again, this is the thing. Like, we're submerged in this. Isn't that the superhero ethic? Aren't you describing Clark Kent? You're describing Clark Kent for the better part of like five decades. Super American superheroes are rife with lying assholes. That's all they do. It's all like, oh, I'm a socialite by day and by night. I'm Gaslight Man. I think that's the original. That's the, isn't that the Silver Age Sandman? Isn't that that guy? They should read reissue that hero and call him the gaslighter coming from DC and he runs around with his gas guns and being like like, you didn't see me you didn't see me you didn't see me we live in a meritocracy yeah that would be awesome 
Uh, sorry, Graham. I'm I'm pulling you off of your points. I'm sure to hide from my own embarrassing lack of knowledge. No, I'm just I'm just. There's so much that is. <laughs> so it deep. stinks. It just but, but stinks nothing, so heavily. Nothing is as deeply fucked as Marvel hiding from it and getting away with hiding from it. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the you thing, because what are they going to do? Are people going to boycott their comics? Like, No. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's just, it's astounding, yeah. you know, that this this is, but at the same time, you know, what the fuck? Marvel just hired an alleged serial harasser. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? but, and again, got away with it. Yep. So why not? Keep your head down. Anyone who is a really shitty person comics, just make friends with people at Marvel. You'll be fine. Yeah. Oh, wow. Which is even the whole Nathan Edmondson stuff, too. Uh, Brian. In a way. What's that? Brian Wood. Oh, and Brian Wood. Yeah. Well, I mean, then once we start with the list, then where do we end up? Yeah. No, but... Uh, so, yeah, Graham, basically, the one thing that I did like that came out of all of this, which is to say, like, as always, the... <laughs> As, as the grapes of, of, uh, civilization are trampled under the, the, the boots of thugs and barbarians, the, um, the mud wine that is made has a certain sweet tincture to it. Uh, so the people on Twitter who were like, you know, sort of, what was it? It was that great, L. Collins had a terrific one, was like, you know, what what's your Marvel pseudonym? And it's I, what was it? Do you know what I'm talking about? It, it, yeah, it's uh, your future Marvel EIC name. It's it's the name of your favorite foreign film. Yeah, with a surname from the the X Man character from the same country as that film. Isn't that great? Well, the re- and the reason for that is, of course, Akira Yoshida. Uh, Yoshida is the last name of Sunfire. Right from from. Which also just makes it fucking stunning as a name. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, of course, of yeah. course. Oh, Jesus Christ, so much about the story is so fucked up. But hey, that's who's running Marvel now, you guys. Yep. Yeah, a guy who came up with the pseudonym that, again, I can't remember who said this one, but it was beautiful. This is the Japanese equivalent of calling yourself Sherlock Beatles, which I love. <laughs> I thought that was the funniest oh, fucking thing. Man. Oh shit. So uh so yeah, you know, interesting let me well actually no, let's not. Uh I was I was like oh, well I was gonna say um Because we should really be wrapping up soon because you have small children going to be arriving oh, here. Jesus Christ, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. What am I thinking? Um, no, well, we'll talk about it next time. Because one of the things that is sad about my DC buying spree is in the course, I was there at Comixology, and I'm like, oh, look at all these other Black Friday sales. And I walked away from all of them except for the strangely named Media Do Sale, which was a... Are you are you familiar with this? You probably aren't, are you? No. It media do media do it. I think it's a quote unquote company, new company that popped up on Comicsology that appears to be a bunch of old, badly translated manga. Like, <laughs> no, no. And, and so I picked up stuff called. Um, uh, oh yeah, because I think some of this stuff was actually available at some of the the. Um, 
Japanese English manga sites where you could like buy credits and download books or download licensing books. I remember that, all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, so, so like I bought shit like S&M books one and two and the Black Labyrinth Troupe book one and Tasokari's Dream. Now most of these were priced pretty inexpensively and part of the attraction to me were A, they look like old weird manga and B, they all the ones that I bought, as you can guess from S&M, were marked for um, ages 17 and up. Because I was like, oh, what if I get something that's like some sort of crazy crying Freeman type vibe, which as you know, I adored, or, um, or Sunken Rock or something like that. And instead what I got was some pretty insane stuff. So Tasokari's Dream by Koji Maki uh, is this easy book that is about like people who are turned into monsters that, you know it's like oh you're a demon from Japanese mythology no I've been experimented on by a lab and I just accidentally happened to look like you know the Japanese frog god that is the monster who steals your farts you know cause, cause they have so not many again these. not again <laughs> I know right and there's some amazing imagery in some of that stuff. Also, the the Black Labyrinth Troupe, which is basically like a Vertigo series uh, on crack. Because um, <laughs> it is. It's it's about as bad as... Remember when, when Vertigo, and maybe they never stopped, was just sort of cranking out like really kind of crap, high-concept ideas that, again, were like, oh, but this will sell because it's edgy kind of thing. The Black Labyrinth oh, yeah. Troupe is a series, an ongoing series. There are multiple volumes. I don't know how many, but uh, where basically there's a Japanese, uh, there, there, uh, there's a traveling troupe, the Black Labyrinth troupe, that promises like the world's most exciting deviant uh, S&M show where like women are cut a, open live, like a Grand Guignol show, but only you know, actually happening before your very eyes. And so what happens is evil people see these shows and they get so excited that they're going to go and be able to watch people be tortured because all that makes them excited, sexually aroused in life is being able to cut apart people that they show up for these shows. And then they get to see, um, women cut apart and they're like, Oh, ha ha ha. Wow. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm about ready to ejaculate all over myself in exciting fashion. And then suddenly the, the, you know, um, decapitated woman will jump up and throw a sheet of glass and behead them all at the same moment. And they're like, ah, because the black labyrinth troop is a group of ghosts that was, it was like a Dutch, Jap half Japanese, half Dutch family that was like killed and burned at the stake for being witches back in the, you know, 17th century. And now essentially in, in the, it's kind of weirdly half the take reminds me a lot of 70 ghostwriters comics in that the noble samurai who watches his, his wife and daughter be burned at the stake sells his soul to the devil to try and save them. And the devil grants his wish by essentially reuniting the the daughter and the mother and the husband in death and that they are to basically travel the countryside um putting on these horrific shows to lure evil people into them and then they get to kill them and their their souls go to the devil 
right? So, as if all of that wasn't weird enough, the stories are deeply sentimental because there's always, like, the guy who steals bread who, like, ends up going to the show and there's always some point where they're like, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to go back. There's a lot of stuff, like, tough ruffian who, like you know, is very confused and violent, but it, it's because he saw his mother get raped when he was a child and he completely blocked on the, the whole experience. And now as a whole person who's experienced catharsis and recovered his memory, he no longer is traumatized and will go out and do good now. And one of the, one of, you know, usually the young daughter like sheds a lonely tear because on the one hand she was hoping she might have a new friend, but now she's happy that she'll never see him again because he's going to go have a good life. It's kind of, it's sort of like, you know, some, you know, it's typical kind of amazing old school Japanese manga where it's like, what if, what if Will Eisner was tasked with trying to tell sexually transgressive stories? What would happen? You know, it's like he'd make them heartwarming, sexually transgressive stories. (laughs) So and that's definitely where we should leave it for this week. Yeah, we definitely should. (laughs) We definitely should. Let me call you back because you are once again buzzing. I don't know what's happening with Skype, but this is a nightmare that we can't talk for longer than an hour of time. And we'll do a quick wrap up. We really should wrap things up. Mm-hmm. We because re- because you're now it, presuming they arrive on time, uh, an hour and ten minutes away from um, being the fun uncle oh, for Jesus. the next day. I know, right? Yeah, you're not vaguely prepared, Jeff. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm so not. It's going to be like. Here's your advent calendar, kids. Good news. Your future is trash. You know. Exactly. You're going to inherit the earth because you're definitely going to be meek because everything sucks. <laughs> exactly. Happy Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because I mandate to say happy Christmas now. Oh, people. Hey, we're going to be back next week with a regular way what? I think. I think. Right? I, I I'm know. right in saying the that. The voice of confusion. Yeah, let's say. Yeah, sure. let's. Yeah. It's going to be a regular way what? Because we did a Baxter building two weeks ago. I'm fairly sure. We'll be back. It'll be awesome. In the meantime, I'm going to tell you there will be show notes for this episode and written posts. I believe this week Matt Terrell and I are going to be writing about the uh, first uh, Priest Pete Woods issue of Justice League um, on the main site, waitwildpodcast.com. There is new content on every weekday apart from Friday because that's when I have a killer deadline on the Tumblr, (laughs) waitwildpods.tumblr.com. There is... Occasional tweets sometimes on our Twitter at Wade Watt Podcast. Uh, Jeff is on Twitter solo at Jeff. Uh, sorry, not at Jeff Lester. At Lazy Bastard. <laughs> at L A Z Y B A S T I D. I am on Twitter solo at Graham M and G R A E M E M. And we are a Patreon supported podcast, which means Jeff is going to explain the entire concepts of Patreon to you <laughs> right now. <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. First of all, there was labor. No, uh, so anyway, uh, Patreon's great. We love it. We really do. Um, we love you guys, uh, all of our listeners. We love the fact that you managed to put up with like really all over the map episodes. I was going to say like this one, but honestly, maybe kind of like everyone I'm starting to worry. And uh, also, this was not the most like all over the place we've been. That's true. This almost seems relatively focused, I think, by comparison, sort of, maybe. I don't know. Uh, 
we appreciate the fact that you listen to us. Uh, it's, it's a thing that Graham and I enjoy talking with one another, but, um, you know, also really enjoy the fact that other people seem to appreciate it. It means a lot to us. And then Patreon is like this whole other extra level where people are kind and generous enough to throw us a little bit of big loot. And, uh, you know, it's a sh- is what we're going for this time. Yeah, I guess so. I like fat stacks so much, but I was like, I really got to use people who are like, use like Ghent or something like that. And there were, there were some other things. It was great. I put it in a list that I can't access now because my computer's being weird. So I had to be like <laughs> big loot. And of course, Graham being Graham, big loot. That's a term, huh? And I'm like, ah, it's totally a term. No, fat, big, big fat stacks. Fat stacks can totally. Let, for, okay. Everyone, whatnots. Let's all agree in 2018, we're going to call Jeff fat stacks. Okay. Would you? That's just, yeah, that, that's, that's the new thing. Oh. In fact, for Christmas, Jeff's going to be reading Fat I'm down with it. I am <laughs> down with it. Uh, we will be back next week with another Wade Wads, and we, who even knows what I, either of us will have read by then. Actually, that's not true. I definitely will have read the 2080 Christmas special and the DC Comics Christmas special. So next Wade Wads, might be our seasonal special. Wow. That sounds amazing. Jeff's going to open a window at the end and go, what day is it? <laughs> and everyone will be like, it's like two weeks before Christmas. What's your problem? What, what is weird and you'll be you? like, like, great. <laughs> Until then, bye. <laughs>